Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in for the first time today, you can start on day 113. 113. Uh, welcome to the podcast. If this is your first time, we do like to answer questions as much as we can. As much as you send them in, we try and answer them every week. Uh, there are three ways to send in those questions. The first one is an email. Uh, we call this the old school method because email has been around for a lot longer than any kind of social media DM. Uh, but the email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Uh, or as I said, you can DM us on social media. We have a Facebook page and we have an Instagram I guess, handle uh, the Grove Church in Washington State, as Evan already said, or our Instagram handle is the Grove CH, uh, and you can DM us those questions there. All right. Yeah, I, I feel I feel bad. Last week we said we didn't get any questions, and then I realized that beloved listener Tim had sent in like two questions, and I just I missed. Liar! I, I, I lied to everyone. I lied to the audience because I just I missed them like a like a fool, like Don't the fool that I was. I'll, I'll slap them after the podcast. Thank you. All right. <laughs> so kidding. let's pick up the uh, the story. We are picking up right where we left off. This is the fallout from Uzzah, who just died. So if you remember, last week we ended on the idea, not the idea, on the story. David wants to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. They're partying. This is a good time. The ark's about to fall off of a cart. A man named Uzzah goes and he tries to, you know, stop. Well, we don't know if it's going to fall off a cart. We just know the oxen stumbled. And so he put his hand on it. That's Stabilize it. That's fair. Yeah. So he was probably more afraid of what was going to happen than what was going to happen. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, And so Uzzah does that. He is struck down by the Lord. David is freaked out. And so he just leaves the, he leaves the ark at Obed-Edom and... That's kind of it for a little bit, for a few months. So uh, the ark has been left there and Yahweh has blessed the house. Basically, everything is prospering. It's a good time. And David makes the decision to finally take the ark the rest of the way back to Jerusalem after it's been in Obed-Edom for about three months. Uh, So that's all we get in our first Samuel, our second Samuel reading. We jump over to Chronicles and we get the details of what that actually looks like. So, and Samuel, it's a little bit more of a, uh, which is funny because I feel like Chronicles is usually the one that's more of an abridged when you read it. Whereas this, in this case, it's Samuel and Chronicles is filling in some of the details. Uh, so we see that David has clearly learned his lesson as he sets up a tent for the ark. And then he actually grabs Levites to carry the ark. Because remember, listener, if uh, a few months ago, when did we read Numbers in Exodus and Leviticus? I don't know. I feel like it's been forever. It ago. all blends together. But a few, a few episodes ago, when we were going through those books, one of the big sections was God lays out exactly how the temple, not the temple, how the tabernacle and the holy items within specifically the Ark of the Covenant being one of those, how they're supposed to be carried and how there's specific tribes of, not even tribes, there's specific clans within mm-hmm. the tribe of Levi who are supposed to do those things. So David's like, hey, uh, let's get some Levites in here. It's a good deal. Uh, and then David is also, and I, I didn't realize this, David is the first to appoint a ministry of music for the Levites. So this does not seem to exist before. And I, I say seem because maybe I'm missing a verse somewhere, but I'm pretty sure um, that this is the first time we hear about this. And so a group of them are, com- a group of Levites are commanded to raise sounds of joy as the ark is transported. Um, and it kind of makes sense because if there's, if there's one thing we know about David, it's that he loves music. <laughs> so he, yep. obviously he's the author of most of the Psalms and most of the Psalms that he writes, I shouldn't say most, because again, I don't know that off the top of my head, but a lot of the Psalms that he writes, it's specified, hey, these instruments are the ones yeah. that you're going to use for it. Well, in the start of his ministry was was music. True. Yeah. For Saul himself. So yeah, and, music's a big part. And we all know how that worked out. 
Just kidding. That wasn't hey. David's fault. No, it wasn't. <laughs> um, so we're going to jump he back. He brought relief to Saul, so That's we do fair. know it worked out. He just almost died because of it all. We're going to jump back to 2 Samuel, and we're going to see that David is offering a sacrifice every six steps taken by the Levite who bore, Levites who bore the ark. Um, David is almost certainly <laughs> not the one doing the sacrifices yeah. because that would be, you know, breaking the rules. Um, AKA but, Saul. Yeah, come on. But yeah, that's a ton of animals, basically. <laughs> so I, many. I was trying to see, like, is there another way to read this? Like, is it just saying after they took the first six, six steps? But no, it seems like it's every six steps the Levites took, they, sacri- they did a sacrifice. So there's a lot of there's a lot of blood on the way from Obed-Edom to Jerusalem, but there you go. Uh, and then da- David is dancing for joy with his linen ephod. And he's just he's just going nuts. He's excited. Interestingly, so the ESV Study Bible points out that the word for used for dance here is only used in this one spot in the whole hmm. Bible. So it's no it's nowhere else. Um, and then from from other places we've seen the word, it seems to be the word for spinning or twirling. So you can kind of get that's pretty much what my youngest daughter does. Yeah, there you go. So you you kind of get an idea that David is. Um, this is going to sound bad. I don't mean it to be bad, but he's looking hes looking like a fool, right? Like he's twirling around. He's just excited. He's happy about it. Yep. Um, obviously, as we're going to see here in a little bit, not everyone is super stoked about the fact that that's the way that David looks, but that is kind of, that is what we see. Uh, and Michael, as she, remember, Michael is David's wife, Saul's daughter. And she's uh she's been she's been a really good wife. So I mean she's only had like a couple instances where she's been able to kind of demonstrate that. But remember, David was about to be killed, and Michael is the one who saves his life. So mm-hmm. it's not like this is this does not seem to be an estranged marriage, at least beforehand. But Michael looks out the window and she is not happy with what she's seeing. Uh we jump back over to Chronicles for a second, and Chronicle repeats the same basic sentence. It is showing that Michael's displeasure with David. Uh, and then interestingly, both accounts call her the daughter of Saul. They do not call her David's wife. It says Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out and saw David. So it's kind of giving you a hint of uh of what her temperament is right now. <laughs> we go we go back to 2 Samuel. So whenever my wife is mad, I'll call her a daughter of John. Exactly. And not my wife. Got it. Uh, in 2 Samuel, <laughs> we jump back and the ark is put into the place that David has set aside with more sacrifices being offered to God. Uh, David also really shows up as king in this moment. So he blesses the people in the name of Yahweh, uh, and he gives everyone in Israel a gift of bread, meat, and a raisin cake. Ooh, and full a, meal. And again, when I first read that, I thought it was everyone who was gathered, but it does seem like he actually like... Every single person in Israel gets this gift as a celebration mm-hmm. of um, of the ark returning to Jerusalem. So that's a, yeah, David's been David's been a real king right here. Yeah. So and I, I love the you also I, see the magnitude of his wealth. <laughs> yeah, with all the animals that have been sacrificed, with all of the food that he's given out, like you see the magnitude of the wealth that he has. Yeah, at least the wealth of the nation. I, I think. It is, it is an important thing, though, because I, what David's doing here is good leadership. It's showing, mm-hmm. hey, the ark of God being returned to the place where God says it should be, this is a thing worth celebrating, yeah. and we are going to celebrate it. So good good, good on David here. Uh, we jump back over to Chronicles, and this is going to give us a... Uh, basically, it picks up right after that prayer, uh, and it tells a little bit about David continuing the ministry of music. So he's instructing the Levites as to what to do. And then he gets a song of thanks. So we see... That we, we can assume that this was played during these events. Uh, so David must have written it. And there's a couple interesting points in it. Uh, I, I, don't know, I, love, I love biblical poetry, so just kind of going through it. But <laughs> No uh, way. It's good stuff. <clears throat> but he encourages the people to praise God directly, not only through the sacrificial system. And so I think sometimes we can overstate a little bit about the idea that um, there was no access to God 
before the new covenant, but there clearly are areas in the Old Testament where he says, cry out to God directly. And, yeah. and that's not a, that's, that's a good thing. And it's also encouraging the people to, hey, don't just think about your relationship with Yahweh once a year when you go to offer sacrifices. It's praise him, thank him all the time. Uh, David encourages the people to always remember their covenant with Yahweh, which kind of reminds me of, you know, the Deuteronomy passages with Moses, that's an important reminder. Don't forget the covenant that you're under. He encourages all of creation to rejoice at the reign of the Lord, which is great. And then it ends with this final section uh, where it says, save us, O God of our, of our salvation and gather and deliver us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, amen and praise the Lord. So good deal. Amen. A amen. <laughs> you really can't, you can't end it better than that. That it's is an true. absolutely true, true statement. Um, and I also just love, again, when you're reading, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, it's blessed be Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. And it's, it's communicating that, like I've always said, I shouldn't say always, I didn't come out of the womb saying this, but for years I've said, uh, Revelation 21 is probably the most beautiful passage in my mind, of Scripture. Um, and my favorite part of Revelation 21 is the promise that uh, we will got, be God's people and He will be our God. And that's kind of what's being communicated here when He says the Lord, the God of Israel, is saying that this is Yahweh, the eternal creator, the God who is above all other lower G gods, is our God. Mm -hmm. So pretty cool. Second uh, Samuel 6. Uh, starting in verse 20 is the next section that we pick up. Uh, and we get two important scenes. So first, to wrap up the saga of David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, we see Michael confront David over his behavior. Uh, she's upset with how he had, at least in her eyes, dishonored himself as the king by the way that he danced. Uh, David rightly responds by saying that it is right that he should praise Yahweh with all of his might. Uh, so I, I think, and this is, I don't know, Aaron, how you feel about this, but I, I do... I do split a little bit with how I feel about David in this moment, because I think he's absolutely right that like, yeah, no, this is a right moment to, uh, to just go nuts and go crazy and, and, and praise God for what he's done. I do think he could have picked a different tone. So notice how, what he says here, it says, and David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them shall I be held in honor. And then it says after that, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So I feel like there's a very different tone David could have run. Mm -hmm. He could have come out with like, hey, like I I'm going to praise God for what he has done. And even like it's before the Lord who I am who I am praising right now. This is a beautiful moment that we need to celebrate. Like kind of bring Michael yeah. along on the journey a little bit. Instead, he just goes straight for like, no, it's it's God, who, by the way, picked me above your dad, who's dead now. Remember that, Michael? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and maybe I'm, yeah, like I said, maybe I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not giving David credit here, but it feels like he could have, uh, he, he could have been a more loving husband in this moment, I suppose. Yeah, but I also think you've got to remember culturally. Um it was not, I mean, go back, like, I, I think of the, the story of Esther in some respects, right? Where she was only allowed to be before the king if he was, if he wanted her to be before the king. And if she showed up without it being called, she could lose her life. So there's a certain level of honor and respect that needs to be paid towards the king. Now, here's the deal. In, in our modern day reality, yes, absolutely, there's a better way to speak. But I think with the way that Michael came across or came at David, 
Um, I, I think he was a little bit frustrated too. Uh, and right. so, uh, so I think, I think both parties are at a wrong in some respects, but again, culturally, we can't totally understand the, the dynamics being played out here. Uh, it's very much a, about honor and shame in Middle Eastern culture. Uh, and so I think that pl- that's playing out as well. I think, I think when you have someone like Michael coming at David, the way she came at David, um, he responded in kind, in essence, who am I? Who, who am I? Who are you that you came to me like this? I am the king. Like, um, and so, and his point was, I mean, it goes back to even what I think Paul says in, the, in Philippians. I think, like, if if it appears like I'm crazy, it's for God. But if it appears like I'm insane, it's for you. I just think there's a layer of like, there's no other reason in all of life to be undignified, which is that, which is the word like con- more contemptible than this. To be more indignified than this is the simple fact that the Ark of the God, the Ark of the Covenant is coming back to the city of David, to the city of Jerusalem. Um, so I don't know. I don't I don't have a lot of heartburn over this because of the cultural realities, because of the context. Modern day times, a little bit different filter, a little bit different conversation. Um, but I think in the moment, in the light of what what's happening contextually, I think that's a big deal. So yeah. th- that's my thought. And I, I, w- I would not argue that David is... Um trying to think how to say this. I, I would not argue that Michael is in the right. I would I would more just kind of argue that David could have probably handled it a little a little bit better, but you know. Yeah, but I think that's looking at it from a modern lens. Yeah. I, I think looking at it from a con- contextual lens, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I yeah. If I'm removing my modern eyes for a second, I don't have any issue with it. Yeah. So. To be clear, yeah. Michael's, Michael's in the wrong as well. And then David is either a little bit in the wrong or not. Uh, So after some time has passed, we go past this, uh, we get to chapter seven and we are introduced to a major character for the rest of the story of David. And that's the prophet Nathan. Uh, Nathan's going to come up a few times. And according to tradition, Nathan is the one who assembled a lot of Samuel, the the book of Samuel. So not the person. So Samuel was a human, (laughs) (laughs) assembled in the normal way. Uh, and so David tells Nathan that he wants to build God a temple and Nathan's like, you know, paraphrasing, but yeah, Hey, seems cool to me. I mean, God's obviously on your side, so go do whatever you think is right. Um, later, however, we hear that we realize that this is not something that Yahweh wants David to be doing. And so we get this in uh, starting in verse four of chapter seven, but that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel out of from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd the, my people, saying, why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you uh, that you should be my prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make your name great and like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. As formerly, from that time, I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. So I'm not going to read the whole passage there, but what it's getting at is it's, it's this really interesting idea of, it kind of reminds me of when Israel wanted a king, where yeah. they they want a king and, and God's like, why? I'm your king. And then now David's like, I want to build God a temple. And God's like, why? 
when, when, when did I say that? When did I say that I wanted a temple? When did I say that I wanted a house of cedar is the words that are used there. But it is this really interesting thing where just like the king is anointed by God, even though it's kind of understood as um, this is not what God wanted, the temple's kind of the same way, which I don't know if I've ever seen it that way, but it hmm. seems like the way God meant for Israel to worship was at the tabernacle. And then because the people wanted a temple, like he obviously blesses the temple. We get that. We'll read that in here. I don't know if it's next week or the week after, but the dedication of the temple is like a big moment where, mm-hmm. where all that stuff's going to happen. But it is it is kind of interesting in that moment. I also love in this passage that God calls David a prince. And he's like, you are my prince over my people, Israel. So in other words, the relationship there is very clear where God is still capital K, king of kings. Mm-hmm. And then David, he's a lowercase K. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I, I, lo- I love that reminder as well. Um, and in that same passage, God also says that it will be David's son who builds the temple. So eventually, and then he will have his throne established forever and that he will never lose God's steadfast love like Saul did. Um, pay attention yes. <laughs> to that, that last sentence where, where God says, I will not remove my steadfast love for him like I did for Saul uh, because Solomon is uh, he's going to deserve that and God doesn't do it yeah. specifically because of this moment, because of this promise. So that's a very important promise that God's making there. But I think there's also the, the, like the fore, uh, foreshadowing of what's to come because you see this, like you're throwing, I will never lose the steadfast love of God. Um, and, and he does some things that he should lose the steadfast love of God. David does. And so there's True. this this foreshadowing of, I know what's coming, because he even referred to Solomon who's going to build the temple. So he, in this moment, he's also he's also foreshadowing what's going to happen in the fulfillment of this heartbeat, this passion, this vision of David. Um, so he's in this foreshadowing moment, he also then reinforces this line of like, you won't lose my love. Like you will always have my love. Um, and that's really important because of the, not just because of Solomon, because Solomon deserves some some of that, but uh, David does too. And and so I think it's interesting just to see God, God, God's aware of the eternal now, right? He sees everything from the start of creation to the end of it all. Like, um, so he sees it in it presently in every moment. And so he knows what's coming. Uh, and so even to make that line and that reminder, like it's a huge statement um, and not just because of Saul, but because of David. Right. And yeah, I think there's the way that we view David is we're going to talk about his moral failings. Actually, I'll put a pin in that listeners. We'll talk about this after Pause. we talk about David's moral failings, which won't Ping. be very long. Uh, okay. So the Chronicles passage of this also, it's it's pretty much identical to the Samuel. And you'll notice that today, uh, a lot of the Chronicles passages, I'm just going to say it's pretty much identical. There's a few different omissions. Yeah. If there's something really interesting, I'll try and point it out. Um, so for instance, in Chronicles, it's a little bit more notable for the things that omits, such as Yahweh giving David rest from his enemies. That sentence isn't in there. Um, God doesn't use delivering the people of Egypt out, out, or delivering the people of Israel out of Egypt as an example. And then most notably, there's a line in Samuel where God promises to discipline the son of David yeah. when he errs. That line is not in Chronicles. Um, so what? Just kidding. I don't know what that means, but because uh, God definitely does. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, but, there are some notable omissions in our Chronicles readings, especially this week. Right. Even a even a very big omission in Chronicles. Ooh, uh, teaser. So, 
Anyways. All right. Well, let's jump, let's jump back into Samuel. Uh, when David hears the news from Nathan, you might expect him to be a little bit bummed. You know, he's like, hey, yeah, you're not going to build the temple. Um, instead, he offers a prayer of gratitude. Uh, and he marvels that mm-hmm. Yahweh has chosen him and his house to be made great on the earth. Um, and he also stresses that there is no God other than Yahweh. And I think it, it reminds me of the Psalm. I, I wish I could remember which one. But it's the famous, you know, who am I that you are mindful of me? And I think that we get this encapsulation of what are you reading? I'm a friend of God. Yeah. Oh, also a great. I love that song. And I'm normally not. I'm not a big '90s, early 2000s Christian worship guy. But I I love I'm a friend of God. I can't stand that song. Oh, it's great. I love it. Um, it's just it's just a good reminder. But I I don't I don't think we read that one this week. We don't. Okay. No, it's not in the two that I highlight. Oh, then well then then we don't read it because. I know mine. Uh, all right, so we're gonna jump. I'm gonna jump back over to Chronicles, uh, and again, the Chronicles version is mostly similar. And I didn't notice any anything notable differences. If you notice something that I completely omitted that's important, you know, feel free to write in, and, and I'll I'll yell at myself next week. Make sure it's all caps. When you write it. Exactly. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, jumping back over to 2 Samuel, uh, th- in chapter 8, this section details the expansion of David's kingdom due to conquest. Um, it's been a while since I've said this. I would look up a map because this yes. is actually really helpful. So look up a map at the start of David's reign uh, and then at the end, and you'll see that it about triples in size. So pretty good. The ESV Study Bible has a map in there that I was looking at. I'm like, oh, perfect. And the, But you can find those online as well. So does the CSB. Oh, CSB as well. So there you go. Uh, notably, <clears throat> David subdues Philistia and Edom. So those are kind of some ancient enemies. Oh, Edom, not necessarily an ancient enemy. They should be a friend, but they're not. The Philistines, you know, those guys are just, you know, those guys are real pieces of work. Uh, and we don't hear too much about a bunch of wars after that. They will they will come back up. And then famously, Edom, uh, you know, when when Jerusalem is being besieged by the Babylon by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, Edom is, you know, they don't they don't take it that well. But we'll get to that when we get to Obadiah, uh, which is which will be a long time from now. <laughs> so it's true. Uh, and then in the latter, we're talking about the conquest of Edom, we hear about a battle in the Valley of Salt where David gains even more fame for striking down 18,000 Edomites. So good deal. Good deal. Good way to go, David. Uh, and then there is one important quote at the end of this passage. Where, I shouldn't say one. There's obviously, it's all important, but I love this quote at the end where it says, and Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. So again, it's that, that theme of judges where these are God's victories. These are not yeah. David's victories. And it's a very important thing to remind to remember here. Uh, as we jump over to Chronicles, it gives us the same events with a little bit of a dif- different perspective. Uh, so we see that Gath is the city of the Philistines being taken. In the Samuels, in the Samuel account, it's listed as Methag Amma, uh, which we don't know what that word means. So it could mean it could be another word for the city of Gath that we're just not that's mm-hmm. not used anywhere. Um, it's also speculated it could be the type of land, like there's something that Methag Amma means. So, but who knows? But there you go. Uh, and then it omits a couple of details, but it does share uh, you know, possibly the most important thing that was ignored by the author oh, of Samuel. I love it. In chapter 18 of First Chronicles, verse 12, it says, And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. What the heck, author of Samuel? Just giving Abishai no credit for what he... Ah, whatever, you know. David, he's the king. He gets all the credit when it, you know, it's Abishai, his general, who's the best mighty man. If you missed it... If you missed it last week, listeners, I was talking about how when I was a kid, I picked Abishai as my favorite. Yes, I was just going to say, if you're missing the context of why Evan is so passionate about this revelation, 
uh, is because Abishai is his guy. So yeah, Abishai's the bomb. All right, uh, and then also I guess he, you know, speaking of Abishai, he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's <laughs> servants. So you know, seems like he's a pretty good general who deserves some of the credit. But whatever. Did you see me smiling when you read that? I, did. <laughs> <laughs> I just started chuckling to myself quietly because I didn't want you to hear me chuckling. Oh Damn man! All right, well let's jump <clears throat> over to Psalm sixty, and here's the deal, listeners. Before we read this psalm. We, we really need to talk about this Valley of Salt issue because as I was reading this, I was like, I wasn't actually like mad or anything. But like when I read this, no. uh, the Chronicles one, I was like, whoa, Abish, why isn't he getting the credits? Yep. And so we read Psalm. It's opened up as this was written when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So Joab also is getting credit for what's happening here. So Abishai only killed 6,000 then. Maybe. Yeah. I'm just so kidding. I don't know. That is the question of like, yeah. I, and the, basically, here's the deal. All three of them were probably there. And we're going to see this later yeah. where uh, David, is it the uh, the Ammonites? The, uh, we'll get there. You just wait. I, yeah. Just wait. I'll, I'm, already, I'm already ahead of you on that one. Yeah. So jo- David, Joab, and Abishai are all in the battle, and they all get credit for doing separate mm-hmm. things. And so it, it does make well, sense. Well, remember, Joab and Abishai are, are brothers. Right. And they had, Ash- oh, I don't remember his name now. Asael. Asael. Or, or Ashael. Yeah. He was the one that got killed by- um, Abner. Abner. And then, so that, but Joab and Abishai are, are valiant warriors. Joab is the commander of the army. Abishai is is a leader in the army, and so there's there's connection to all three of these guys being closely uh, not related but friends. Like they they fight together. Right. So. If you want to, if you really want to synthesize all three, it would be David gets the credit as king. Abishai may have been the general in charge of this particular military operation, and then Joab's wing of the army took out twelve thousand of the Edomites, and then Abishai's wing took out the remaining six. Yep. But, who knows? Like I said, ultimately, it's just kind of, or you could reverse it, I guess, and say that Joab was the one getting credit for the smaller number. And then later on, as they took a full accounting of it, they were like, oh, no, it was actually close to yeah. 18. Who but knows? Who knows? Anyway, it's not It's not like it's- They all were involved in some capacity. Yeah. It's not like it's actually that important, but I, you know, I like it. It's when, important enough. I like it when my boy Abishai gets credit, okay? <laughs> all right. So back to Psalm If you 60. have a son- <laughs> Abishai is what I'm going to refer to him as from now on. There you go. Uh, So back to Psalm 60. Uh, The psalm is seemingly a little bit out of nowhere. So the reports from Samuel and Chronicles show everything going really well. Like it's David's conquests that are happening. Um, So here we get a peek into David's inner thoughts. So even while the conquest is going well, um, David is feeling unrest. And I think it seems like the years of war are kind of tolling on him. Are taking they're taking their toll on him. Um, he talks about how it's dragging on him, it's dragging on the people, but they express their hope that God will prevail and that all of the surrounding nations will be are they are under God's sovereign rule. Yeah. I it's interesting because I think this leads into the David and Bathsheba story, where you can kind of see in Psalm 60 is and this is all conjecture, listener, by the way. Um, is David getting tired of war? And do we see here this hmm. is where his mind is at? when he decides to stay home yeah. from the next war that they fight, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. So I don't know. That's very open-handed. I could be completely off base on that, but the, the thought occurred to me. Uh, going back to 2 Samuel, uh, the, we get a short passage about how David set up his government. So we know that Joab is placed over the armies. Uh, Benaiah seems to be placed over David's personal guard. So uh, again, of lion, killing a lion on a snowy day yep. fame. Uh, and the Egyptian, don't forget, with his own spear. That's true. Good call. Good call. Seven foot Egyptian. Uh, David's sons are also mentioned as priests, uh, which would have been a different role than Levitical priests, but we're mm-hmm. not sure what that is. And it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting because the Chronicles passage that we read right after this, it lists David's sons as chief officials in the service of the king. 
Uh, so we can kind of imply that the, their priestly duties were their priestly duties were specifically for the king in some manner. But I, yeah. yeah, I don't think David is. I think David learned his lesson. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't think he's putting his sons in as actual Levitical priests doing sacrifices and stuff like that. Good job, David. Uh, the rest of the passage in Chronicles uh, specifically lists out the Levites who David placed over his ministry of music or ministry of song that he had established. So if you want to know the names, there you go. And when we get to heaven, we can look some of them up and we can hear the songs. <laughs> uh, in 2 Samuel chapters 9 through 10, uh, this is we get a we get a nice big section that Chronicles doesn't really cover. So we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But uh, first off, we see David seek out a member of Saul's family to show kindness to on Jonathan's behalf. So remember David and Jonathan, incredibly close friends. Jonathan, one of the all around great guys of the Bible, um, and he is killed in Saul's final battle. And so David and Jonathan make a covenant to each other. Mm -hmm. And so David wants to find a way to honor that covenant. I also love that he doesn't say Jonathan's family. He says specifically Saul's family. And the inference there is that or the implication there is that David would show kindness to anyone in Saul's family, even someone who's not directly related to, well, they would be related to Saul, Jonathan, yeah. but not a direct descendant of Jonathan. Well, and, but he even shows favor to, to Saul's household. Like we see that in the coming accounts and things like that, that there is, there is honor that David pays to Saul's household. Right. Even though it's not always reflected. True. Uh, and so he, David finds out about Jonathan's surviving son named Mephibosheth, which is just one of the worst names in the Bible as far as like, <laughs> as far as just tongue twisters go, but whatever, we'll use it. Uh, <laughs> we'll kind of have to. Yeah, we have to. Right? We could call him Mephi, I guess, but no, we'll say, we'll say Mephibosheth. Uh, David seeks him out and brings him to the palace and he declares that he will be treated like one of his own sons and that he will always eat at the king's table. And remember, uh, we talked about this last week. Today we read that and we're like, yeah, that's nice. That's nice of David to do. Back then, if you were the king of a new dynasty, you would kill all of the members of the old dynasty, anyone yeah. who had any claim to the throne. And Mephibosheth is the rightful king under the, um, not God's law, but yeah. under the law of, uh, is it primogenitor? I don't remember. The, the, the laws of inheriting- I have no idea what you just said. The, the laws of inheriting the kingship. Mephibosheth should actually be king according yeah. to those laws. Um, and so David- any earthly king, except for David in this moment, probably looks to have Mephibosheth killed because if David ever loses popularity, which spoilers can happen, um, then someone else can come and make a claim for the throne. But no, he doesn't. He treats Mephibosheth as one of his own sons. And I, 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 I never caught this before. Notice how Mephibosheth responds. He says, he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? And I couldn't help but think that that it reminds me of David's response to God. When God hmm. says, I have chosen you and I have taken you out of being a shepherd. I've made you prince over my people. When David says, who am I that you would do this for me? Mephibosheth kind of responds the same way. So I think I think that's, that's just a cool parallel I noticed in that moment where David, yeah. David gets undeserved grace from God. And he passes it along to Mephibosheth in a really cool, in a really cool story. Uh, we also get, uh, we meet a character named Ziba, who is going to come up later. Uh, and he becomes Mephibosheth's servant. He was already a servant. He was an old servant of Saul who was serving under David. And then David makes him the head servant of Mephibosheth. Uh, and then in chapter 10, we're going to get a whole nother story. We see that the king of Ammon dies. Uh, and that his son, it's, listen, the, the, new, the new king of Ammon, he's not as smart as his dear old dad. Uh, and listeners, here's the thing. That is going to be a major theme coming up with some of the kings of Israel about sons not being as smart as their fathers. But I won't spoil that, uh, Rehoboam. So after the king dishonored David's emissaries and prepared for war, uh, 
David sends Joab and all of the mighty men to take care of it. So basically David sends emissaries over and he's like, hey, we're sorry about your father dying. You know, we want to make, you know, our alliance is cool. We want to comfort you. And some of the young king's advisors were like, hey, I bet you David is sending these guys over to spy out the city because he wants to take it. And the king's like, not on my watch. And so he shaves their beards, which I didn't know that was a big uh sign of dishonor in that culture, but apparently yeah, yep. don't, don't yep. shave the beard. So uh, they shaves the beards and then they send them back. And so David actually tells them like, okay, well, Hey, you don't have to come back to Jerusalem. You can wait in Jericho until your beards grow back and then come back. But he's David's livid about this. Uh, and so, and you can see because he doesn't just send Joab and the armies, he sends all of the mighty men <laughs> to yep. go take care of this, which is again, this is like the special forces of David's, of David's army. Um, so Joab and Abishai each take Abishai, each take one army each, <laughs> and they stop the Ammonites and the Syrians respectively. Uh, and they're outnumbered. They, they, they should not be winning this battle. And to Joab's credit, which I don't give Joab credit a ton at the time because he, he most of the decisions he makes are pretty poor, but to his credit here, um, he shows a great deal of faith and he knows he's outnumbered. And he he when him and Abishai are discussing strategy, he ends with, uh, go, have courage, may Yahweh do what seems good to him. So basically he is giving it into God's hands. He's going into a losing battle, but he's trusting God that if it's his will, that if it's God's will that he will win, then he's going to win. So good good for Joab there. Uh, When the Syrians, uh, sorry, I, I, I completely didn't, put this in there. Uh, they win. <laughs> so, yeah. so Joab and Abishai, yeah, they go to, they go to battle. And the idea is like, okay, if you're winning, but I'm losing, then one of the armies is going to shift over and get help. That doesn't end up needing to happen. Both Joab and Abishai's army are stomping their reflective Ammonites and uh, Syrians. So when the Syrians see that they are defeated, they call for reinforcements. And so it says there's Syrians hiding beyond the Euphrates. And so they call them in. Uh, and so Joab does the same. And David shows up with the entire host of Israel and goes ham. So I kind of just imagine like the Syrians are feeling pretty good. They get reinforced. Like, okay, we can hold out. And then you just see David with like, oh no, it's basically all of Israel is here now. Good. Cool. Cool beans. And David, <laughs> and David goes ham. <laughs> like they, they defeat the Assyrians or the Syrians, not the Assyrians. Those, those guys come up later. Uh, we go to Chronicles. This is a long passage of Chronicles. I did not spot any major differences. So this is all of chapter 19 and the first verse of chapter 20. It seems like it's pretty much an exact, not exact. There's obviously a few little things, but it seems like it's pretty much right in line. Mm -hmm. Uh, So getting back to our story in 2 Samuel, we get without a doubt, without a doubt, this is David's greatest failure morally as a person and probably as king. Uh, while these wars continue, so this is, you know, the, the war with the Ammonites and the Syrians, uh, David once again leaves Joab in charge. And while this is going on, David is just chilling at home. He goes up onto his roof and he looks over and he sees a lady bathing and he's like, whoa, she's pretty attractive. And so he goes to his servants. He's like, hey, who is that? And like, oh, that's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, one of the mighty men that you sent to go fight the Ammonites and the Syrians. And David's like, oh, cool. Bring her here. And so David's just kind of, David's been real scummy here. Uh, He sleeps with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba is her name. Uh, And then she comes back a little bit later and she's like, hey, I'm pregnant. And David's like, shoot, this is a huge bummer. Uh, And so David invites Uriah back. He just wants to get some news. He's like, hey, how's the war going? And uh, Uriah's like, I mean, it's going, it's going fine, my Lord. It's going great. He's like, oh, cool, cool, Uriah. Man, I love... I love being see. I love seeing you here. Hey, why don't you? Why don't you go home and uh, you know just why don't you just hang out with your wife? You haven't seen her in a long time. I bet you guys, you know, you guys could do stuff. And then, uh, I'll, you know, you can go back in a couple of days. That'd be that'd be great. And Uriah's like, um, 
okay. And so he goes back home. But Uriah, being an upstanding guy, is like, he's not going to go back in because he says like, and I, I never caught that he specifically mentions also that the Ark of the Lord is in a tent. Um, but he says, how can I go back into the comforts of my home when Joab and the whole armies of Israel are sleeping in tents? And so he sleeps on the doorstep of his house. He will not go into his house. And he swears before David, like, I will not do this. And mm-hmm. so David brings him back and he's like, hey, Uriah, you know, always good to see you, man. Hey, let's have a party. And he gets Uriah drunk and he's like, hey, oh, now that Uriah is like completely inebriated, he's like, hey, why don't you, why don't you go back? Why don't you go back home? You just, you know, just enjoy yourself. Just go back home. And I'm sure Bathsheba's in on this a little bit as well, where like she knows like what needs to happen here. Uh, Uriah goes back, still doesn't go inside the house. And so finally, uh, David does, and as if he hasn't done enough wicked things here, uh, he sends Uriah back to Joab with a sealed letter containing the commands to have Uriah killed in the battle. So he not only does David have Uriah killed, he has him carry the orders for his own death back. And Uriah, being the loyal guy that he is, doesn't look at the order. Yeah. Oh my gosh. David does Uriah real dirty here. Well, it's interesting because I actually read um, an account that kind of just presented some of the context within the city itself, the city of David. Um, and it wasn't just David being scummy, potentially. Ooh. Because of the way that the houses were built and the way the city was and the and the window and the bathing and all that stuff, like there was potentially some promiscuity and intention on Bathsheba's part to because she knew where she was bathing, she knew where the lines because every all the, the the city itself was built on top of each other almost. So like mm-hmm. it's almost in like a really tight apartment complex. Is what it felt like. You can almost peer into each other's windows and different. Like when you live in a tight neighborhood like that. Um, so the, some of the similarities of of what happened here is it's it's it was it could potentially have been a an intentional moment by Bathsheba as well. Interesting because of the timing of her bathing because of uh, because of the the she there would have been no, knowledge of sight a line of sight from the temple, uh, from David's palace, there would have been knowledge there. So so there is some potential indication that it wasn't just David's own scumminess, but it actually was a kind of a, on Bathsheba's part as well that there was some intention there. Too. They might deserve Which is really interesting to think about. They might deserve each other a little bit is kind of what Exactly. Oh, man. Oh, this story is just a huge bummer. <laughs> uh, Let me just heap on the, the, the bummerness yeah. of it. So David commands Joab. He's like, hey, you know, just send in your armies and have them all withdraw. And then, you know, if you're just make sure Uriah dies and Joab's like, okay. Like Joab's kind of, this is where I, this is where the biggest what if of what if Jonathan had survived, this is where it kind of comes into play. Yeah. I kind of have to believe that Jonathan is the one who would be in charge of the armies if he had survived. And I don't think Jonathan does this for David. And maybe I'm giving Jonathan too much credit, but I feel like he gets this order and he's like, what are we talking about right yeah. now? And I also feel like Jonathan would have pressured David into being like, hey, you need to be out here. This is what the king is supposed to do. But who knows? Well, it's interesting because Joab like comes against David later. Like there's moments in, later in, the, right. in, in this week's reading that I'll get to when it's when it's my turn to talk. Um, that sounds so like... When, it's, when, you, when you finally up, shut Evan. up. <laughs> um, but there, but it, there's some moments where Joab directly is, is re- rebuking David. Um, and so it brings me to wonder if if your Joab was like Uriah had to have offended David somehow, and I have to follow the king's orders in this regard. Yeah. Joab is most likely unaware of, unaware of what happened, 
Um, and so, and David would never divulge that. Like, yeah, yeah. Jo- no Joab, Joab hey, does not know about the baby. Hey, Joab, uh, I totally slept with your eyes wife and she's pregnant. I need you to let him die. Like, there's no way that, that Joab knows about this. Um, and so he's following orders, assuming probably there's a fence from Uriah, uh, which either way is it still done or is it righteous? No, not at all. But it's the way things were handled back then. And Uriah is not, or Joab's not going to ask for questions. It is interesting though, because there is a little bit of a disappointment because Joab has on behalf of David, done things that David should have initiated and ordered, but didn't. Um, and then other times where David is rebuked by Joab because David's falling and failing in his kingship. So mm-hmm. we'll get to those things in a little bit, but it's just an interesting dynamic at times that I see play out uh, with Joab specifically. Yeah. So Joab doesn't do, he doesn't do exactly what David said. He has a little bit of a different strategy. He sends the armies up to the walls of the city and he kind of just is waiting for them to get picked off until he sees Uriah die. And then when he sees Uriah that, that Uriah has been hit, then he orders the fall retreat. Fall back, yep. fall back. So it's poor strategy. And it's interesting because Joab sends a servant to go tell David what happened. And he tells him like, hey, when David says, why on earth would you do that? That's a stupid thing to do. And interestingly, he cites Abimelech, who I did not think we were going to be talking about again after his story. Um, but Abimelech, if you may remember listeners, is the son of Gideon, who thought who fancied himself king of Israel during the period of the judges. And he is killed by a woman who throws a, stone, a milling stone off of the city walls because he's standing directly under the walls and he looks up and his head is crushed. And so Joab's like, yeah, when David says, why would you do that? Remember what happened to Abimelech? Just answer back with Uriah, your servant is also dead. And because Joab's like, he'll you'll know what it means. Yep. So, uh, and so that happens and David's like, oh, okay, cool. Um, it, it, basically David's response paraphrasing here, but it's like, oh yeah, tell Joab, don't be worried about it, man. People die in war all the time. That's just, you know, it's a bummer. Shoot. And then that kind of moves on. Uh, David takes Bathsheba to be his wife and uh, the son is born. And soon after he is confronted by Nathan who tells him a story. Um, and Nathan's story is about, he's like, hey, you know, I've been, I've been wandering around. And I heard this story about there's this these two families and one family has, you know, just flocks and flocks of sheep. And then another family just has one lamb that they kind of keep as a pet. Uh, and so a friend came to the first family and wanted to stay over. And so they had to make him dinner. And so they wanted to make, you know, they wanted to slaughter a lamb to give him food. But David, you'll, you're never going to guess what happened. They went to the other family and they took the, he stole their pet. And then they slaughtered that lamb instead. And David is like, David is livid that this happened. And he's like, this man deserves to die for what he did. And then and then David just gets leveled by Nathan and by, extent, <laughs> by extension, God. Um, I'm going to read all these verses here, seven verses, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I, as I was reading this, I was like, wow, this is terrifying. Uh, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That's going to come up here in a little bit. And I will take your wives before 
your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by the deed that you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. So, Oh my god. That's heavy. Yeah. Basically, God is saying, like, I have given you nothing but the best. And you turn around and you steal another man's wife and have him killed. Like, how dare you? Basically, is what God says. And yeah, it's not even the adultery that God's pissed off about. Like that that's the crazy yeah, thing. Yeah, like, it's part, yeah. And but it's he's not it's it's the matter of like you tried to cover it up. Like you tried to and you murdered in light of trying to cover it up. Like it it it's it's crazy to me. In, in a modern lens to think through that, the simple thing that it's not, it's not that the adultery that causes the punishment, it's the, the act of trying to, in his own way and in his own will cover his tracks and then protect his, his own reputation. Like there's, and then so being called out, then you see the repentance, but it's just interesting. It's so crazy to me to think that that's, that's one of the tensions, and that's one of the things that causes the wrath and the punishment right. from God. Well, I do, th- I do think the adultery is part of it because again, for sure that's the story of that's the reason Nathan brings up the story of taking the taking the lamb is that the adultery is the first thing, and then the murder and the cover up is what's after. Yes, and both of them kind of come together to be the the massive cluster that that David is. Well, creating. but and it's but even in in the judgment that Nathan is quoting from the Lord, it's it's because you've taken Uriah, you've killed Uriah and taken his wife right. as your wife, and. And so it, for me, like that's, that's what puts the nail in the coffin. Would there have been punishment for the adultery? Would there have been, yeah, probably. He would have lost Uriah's trust and confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's, so David was trying to protect his own, his own thing. He wanted what he wanted and wanted to protect his own and his own reputation, his own stuff, like whatever, his own ruler, his own rulership, his own kingship. And so there's a layer of that where it's, you see these glimpses throughout David's life where he forgets to trust in God's provision. He forgets to trust in God. Um, and so even in this instance, rather than just come out and repent of it and trust God for the like the protection or whatever, he tries to do it on his own. Right. And, and you see, there's been a couple of different instances we've, we've talked through, but it is interesting that, that that's what causes the, the full-on punishment happening. So, no, that's true. But, um, and so after this, we're going to get into Psalm 51. Which is, this is one of the most famous Psalms. And I would say, this is what truly separates David from so many of the kings of Israel. Yes, 100%. David is confronted with sin and he does not try to justify it. He repents. And we saw that in the passage before, right? When when Nathan just goes after David, David's response is, I have sinned against the Lord. Like he's not trying to fight it. He's not trying to cover it up anymore. He's realized this was a massive mistake that I've made. Um, and Psalm 51 is a heart-wrenching look at the sorrow that David feels over his sin. Um, and so I, I just have a couple of passages I want to read. So the first one is the first two verses. It's, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Uh, the next one is verses 10 through 12. And it says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Mm. So yeah, it, it is hard because like, again, this is David's greatest moral failure, but we do see that he absolutely runs to the Lord in this moment after he's been confronted with his sin. Uh, So to kind of wrap up here, 
uh, after this, we're told that David and Bathsheba's son dies. Um, David is distraught, uh, particularly while his son is sick. He's he's fasting and praying for God's mercy, um, but he understands God's justice. And after he hears that his son has died, he goes to the house of Yahweh and he and he worships. Um, and then right after that, we're told about the birth of Solomon, which takes place sometime later. Um, and then finally, there's a section of Samuel and then two sections of Chronicles that list off um, all the sons of David that are born in Jerusalem. Uh, the only interesting thing I noticed is that in Chronicles, there's a couple extra sons. So there's Elipet and Noga. So I don't know, I don't know who they're born of, but I would guess if I would guess if they're mentioning one, not the other, it's probably concubines, but, <laughs> but, but who knows? That's kind of just the way that it usually works with the old Testament. Um, but that wraps it up for, for my section. So before we get into finally, no, I'm just kidding. It was a long one. Uh, but before we get into Aaron's section, we do want to take a moment to remind you to, you know, Hey, if you haven't left us a review yet, uh, particularly a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, those are really helpful. It helps get the podcast out there to more and more people and grow this community of people reading the Bible together. And on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do that, we will read it on the air, just like we're doing for... Men's Lens. Ooh. So that's a fun name to say, Men's Lens. Uh, but she said this, I'm doing the Bible recap and also listening to your podcast, which helped give so much more info than the other podcasts I listen to. Uh, thank you for doing the research and ho- helping explain it to others. Kind of like the Bible for dummies. I'm going to be honest with you. I love that too we should because have called I that. totally am a, a dummy when it comes to the Bible. And so it's, I appreciate the the fun piece to that. Uh, and I just appreciate the the diligence that you're doing to just continue to grow and learn. So good job on that. Um, and we would love if, if you haven't left a five-star review with a rating on Apple Podcasts, take some time to do that. Again, it just continues. Uh, it just, it, I don't know, ego stroke, it helps us, you know, encourage us as we continue to, to take time to do this every week. Um, but also it continues to increase the algorithm and the exposure of the podcast so we can see, see people jump in and be a part of the community too. So if it's been a blessing to you, we'd love for you to leave a review so it can be a blessing to others as well. Uh, continuing in Second Samuel, uh, we find that David is home uh, after the death of Bathsheba. Uh, Bathsheba's son. Bathsheba's son, sorry. Uh, I appreciate that. I paused at the wrong spot is what it was. Um, but we see David's still home. Uh, his his army is still out fighting, uh, and they come to the city of Rabah. If that's how you say it, I'm going to pretend like it is. Uh, and then we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, 26 to 31, it describes the victory over the city uh, by David, quote unquote. And I put in here, cough, Joab, cough. Yeah. Um, because Joab is the one who does the work, and Joab then calls... Um, calls David and says, hey, I've I've c- captured the city. You should come and finish the job or I'm going to receive the credit. So this kind of goes back to the Abiathar, Abiathar and uh, Joab tension. Abishai, Abishai wow. Abiathar, Abiathar, is, Abiathar the, is another guy that's coming up anyways. Yeah, he'll be a, um, he's a priest. Yeah, so all that to say, sorry uh, for the confusion, uh, but you see this tension, but it really is David who gets the victory, um, even though his men do the work. Um, that's true of almost any organization today. Let's just be honest. Well, I mean, it's like, even like when you think of, uh, um, and this is this is not like political commentary or anything, but you think about like um, the, the SEAL team raid to get mm-hmm. Bin Laden, like... I don't. I, Who got I, the credit? Yeah, I feel bad for it. I don't remember any of the names of the actual like the seal. I know the, it was Seal Team Six, but I don't remember the names of the people who actually went in and yeah. did it. But so it was. A, it was obviously a big victory for it was President Obama. Yeah, when that happened, and so yeah, right, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. Here's the. I don't pay attention a lot to that. So, anyway, but it sounds so a, bad. It's a big political victory for the president in that moment, yes. even though he's not the one who actually has boots on the ground. Um, and so you kind of see this, a similar thing obviously happens with kings of, of yeah. all time. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you see that that's, that 
fight, David shows up. Uh, it makes me wonder if he remembered. Oh, I probably should be out to battle. Uh, it's it's interesting. It says that the, the crown of the king that he he takes victory over uh, is like 75 pounds. So that that's a lot, man. Yeah, like, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, my son is probably 65 pounds right now. Um, and he's a heavy dude. Like he's almost six. He's So he's probably a little underweight. But dude, putting him on my shoulders is tiring to my neck. I can't imagine a 75 pound crown. Anyways. Yeah, get a get a cheaper crown, guy. Yeah. Come on. Weird flex, but okay. Uh, First Chronicles, we shift into that for a couple verses. Details the same battle uh, in a short couple verses. It is interesting. And this was one of the things that we see First Chronicles omitting. The entire Bathsheba episode. It doesn't even talk about what happened with Bathsheba. It starts off in verse one that in the time when kings go to war, David stayed home and Joab was out fighting. Uh, and then it shifts to verses two and three. It talks about the, the fight and the battle of Ramah. Uh, and so that it's interesting that it, like one of the most significant moments in David's story in history is omitted from the book of Chronicles. It kind of reminds me when you watch like biopics every year and it's like always like, you know, like every historical figure. I don't know what biopics is. Uh, like movies about historical uh, events Got and it. figures, right? So every single historical figure has like bad things about them. And mm-hmm. so you'll, but like sometimes like there's things that are really obvious that stick out to you. And you're like, oh, is this just not going to be in the movie at all? And the movie just ends and you're like, oh, yeah. okay, we're just not going to touch that. Like yeah. that's that's how I feel about Chronicles. It's like, yeah, we're just not going to touch the yep. whole uh, Bathsheba thing. And it just, it, I think it probably is more of a, like a historical overview of the, the 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 leadership of David in regards to conquests and kings. I don't know exactly because um, Chronicles covers a ton of stuff, but. Well, and and like the, the goal of Chronicles is different from the goal 100% of Samuel. Correct. And it's not like, it, um, Samuel is a well-known book. So it's not like by the writer of Chronicles admitting this, he's trying to cover up the fact yeah, that this happened. This is well-known. It's taken an overview. And that's why you right. see quick shots and quick highlights and even some detailed stories that are already found in Samuel as well. Um, so we shift out of second Chronicles in that quick overview and we jump into chapter 13. We get a large chunk of just the story. We don't see a lot of breaks between Chronicles. I actually think that was the last Chronicles that we'll have this week. Um, and then we'll have a couple Psalms and then kind of wrap up in Samuel. That's, that's kind of the bulk of the rest of our week's reading, uh, in chapter 13. Uh, and I'm gonna be honest with you, there is so much that happens in, this book, um, historically, narratively, you see so much happening. And so I'm going to, we're going to do our best to cover as best we can. Um, but it really is, it's a good reading. It's narrative. So it's going to be, it's going to kind of a quicker, easier read story driven. Um, but chapter 13, we're introduced to what I would refer to as a, as a it's a disturbing situation, uh, between David's many wives. Uh, we see a conflict between two of the family branches, if you will, uh, between, um, Mecca, and then Ahinahom, and then Anahom, whatever you say his names. I'm not good at these names. Um, it's almost like uh, when you have multiple wives, it just is not <laughs> a good idea. Really? No. I, I think I said this last week yes. as well, but it a, never works out. Nope, doesn't. So you see two sons of two different wives kind of in a conflict. And so you see Absalom on one side, you have Absalom and his sister Tamar, uh, who's the, the children of Mecca. Uh, and then you see Amnon who is David's firstborn from his first wife, Ahinoam. Uh, and you see this conflict. Amon, Amnon, who's the firstborn, wants wants Tamar, his half-sister, to be his wife. Um, but he knew he couldn't marry her, so he gets frustrated, um, not just because he can't marry her, but because he, he's sexually frustrated. Um, Jonadab uh, was a friend of Amnon, offered wisdom, which clearly he was he was referred to in the CSB. It says that he was a shrewd man, uh, which is a reference to wisdom. He has wisdom, but it clearly is not always offered for wisdom is not always offered for a godly 
purpose. Uh, and so we see this with Jonadab. Uh, and so he, in essence, tells Jonadab, hey, what's wrong with you? Why are you so frustrated and distraught? And Amnon's like, well, I want, I want Tamar. I want to be with her. And so he offers some wisdom, well, we'll pretend to be sick and then ask for Tamar to come in and attend you and cook food for you and help get you better, nurse you back to health. Um, so Amnon listens to uh, Jonadab. We are revealed, he says, he says that he loves Tamar. Um, and the reality is it's not love, it's lust. We see the way things play out here. Uh, and so his lust led him to, to a despicable act of end up getting his sister to come attend to him. He ends up raping her. She tried multiple times to appeal to honor and righteousness. Don't do this wicked thing. Three different times she says, don't do this. Don't bring shame to us, to me. Uh, and then she says, okay, if you want to marry me, talk to David, my dad, your, your dad too. Like ask David for permission. Um, and part of it w- was probably to try and escape the situation because she knew David most likely would say no. Uh, so she just Good was job, doing David. everything she could to get out of the situation. Uh, and Amnon, because of his lust, decides, no, I'm going to have my way with you. He rapes her. Uh, and then after he 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 fulfills his, his lustful desire, it says that he hated her. So the light switches from love to hate, which is where I would, like, I would, it, it is revealed in that moment. He never loved her. He just craved her. He desired her. He, he lusted after her. He gets what he wants, and then he, he says, I hate you, get out of here. And she then cries out, and don't not to shame her like this, um, but instead ins- insists that he must now take her as his wife. He rejects that. He has his servant kick her out. Uh, and then Absalom, her brother, finds out. And Absalom says, hey, just be quiet about it. Don't tell anybody. And be, we find out later it's because he had revenge in mind. Um, now, one of the most stark like I think probably problematic verses for me in the midst of this entire situation, an entire passage of chapter 13 here is in verse 21, where it says, when King David heard about all these things, he was furious. And that's where it ends. And nothing happens. And there's part of me as I read that, I was like, how do you not do anything when you find out about this? Well, this this seems to be a problem with Israel's leaders for the last few generations. Because remember... Um, I guess I, I don't, there's not a ton about Saul, I guess, in, in particular here, but I'm thinking of Eli and Samuel, where what they both have in common is that they're pretty good leaders. Samuel, obviously, much better than Eli. Um, but Eli is angry with his sons for what they do. He doesn't really do anything to restrain them. Uh, Samuel, we're not told he doesn't do anything, but we're told that his sons are just kind of, they're, they're following after the sons of Eli. And then we see with David, he is leading the people of Israel. He's he's being a good king mm-hmm. overall. And even like his moral, his personal moral failings are not necessarily failures of his leadership as a king. They're failures of, of him as a man. Yeah. Um, and even in the midst of all that, we see another one of his failures. The, the last one was a failure as him as a him as a husband, him as a as a as a man. This is a failure of him as a father. Yeah. And it's it's pretty clear. Yeah. It's true. And so it's just it's like for me as I'm reading, like it's it's tragic, it's heartbreaking, it's it's disturbing that that's a, that this would play out the way it played out. Uh, but then the fact that David heard about it, he was furious, but didn't do anything about it, I think is a big deal. Uh, and it's disappointing for sure. We we, are, we read that the two years goes by uh, and then Absalom sets up a family event where he has some sheep shears uh, and he invites his family, including David, hey, come join me uh, and we can all shear our sheep together because I bought some sheep shears to do the work. David says, hey, I can't go. It's not wise that we all go because we'll become a burden to you. Uh, and so... Uh, Absalom like urges David to send Amnon with or to him, and David's like, "Why should he go?" And and, and Absalom says, "Well, just I just I really want him there. I want everybody." We find out that all the brothers actually show up uh, and are are in attendance. 
uh, Absalom is then preparing. He he tells his servants, "Hey, when you see that Amnon is, it says like joyful with drink, or he he's he's in good spirits after drinking, uh, to kill him." And so Absalom's servants do what they're told. They kill uh, Amnon. And all of David's sons that were present see this happen, find out this happens, and it says that they jumped on their donkeys and rode away um, and because they were afraid that Absalom would kill them all too. We find out in chapter 13, David hears about this, um, and at first he was told by an individual who fleed, a servant that fleed, that all the sons were killed, but then Jonadab provides correct information that it was only Amnon killed and it was planned uh, two years prior. Uh, and here's the deal. I, I said to Evan before we start recording, Jonadab is a real piece of work. Yeah. Uh, the way that he advised Absalom or sorry, Amnon to do what he wants to do to be uh, the wisdom that he gave was not very godly. And then you have this moment where Jonadab is present. He finds out what's going, he knew what was happening. And then he finds out the servant comes and tells David, Hey, all your sons are dead. So David's like, well, all my, all my sons are dead. And then Jonadab's like, no, no, not all of them, just Amnon. Uh, and this, this was, and then he, Jonadab proceeds to tell David, this was in motion for two years, this whole plan. Um, why would he not bring it up before now? <laughs> like, uh, and and part of it is like the acquiescing of David. David abdicated the responsibility, whether intentionally or unintentionally, for justice and 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 punishment for Amnon because of Amnon's despicable act. But Jonadab sits there in silence. It's You can see that Jonadab is about himself is what it feels like. So I, I really have a bad taste in my mouth about Jonadab. Yeah, he's not the best. Um, and so I think there's some tension here, but he he informs David uh, this happens. It also is interesting. It just, it just stuck out to me here. Um, when Jonadab says that all of your sons have been killed, what event would David almost certainly have had in mind? It's Abimelech killing all the other sons of Gideon. Which yeah. was just in, which was just referenced a, f- a few uh, chapters ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's well, it was a servant that said all of his sons are dead. Jonah does the one that brought clarity, right? J- just oh, the, oh, that's right. Yeah. Just to make sure that there's not confusion. Thank but, you for correcting that. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's it's just kind of interesting that this this old story from Judges. I think you're seeing the you're seeing parts of it be repeated in ways that you would not expect. Yeah, and so you see, so Jonadab tells David what happened, even though he withheld the information for two years. Because um, he had so he he would have had plenty of opportunity. I, I I can't imagine he wouldn't have had plenty of opportunity um, to at least bring it forward. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't have access or an audience with the king. That's fair to say. But all that to say, uh, Amnon is killed by Absalom's servants. Absalom flees, uh, and then I said, and then David grieves. And so chapter thirteen ends with the death of Amnon. It ends with uh, the fleeing of the brother, the sons of David, f- fleeing of Absalom, and then David grieving. Uh, we find in chapter 14, and here's the deal. You see some really good moments for Joab that we've already seen. Um, and you see he really does care about King David. He does care about the the, the kingship. He does care about God's people. Uh, and he knows with the right king, it's important to, to, to care well and just to provide coverage and protection. And so Joab in chapter 14, we see how he is aware of David's concern for Absalom. It says that uh, in the CSB, it reads that Joab is aware that David's mind is always on Absalom. Uh, and so he sets up a kind of not a manipulative way, but kind of a, uh, I'm going to convince David to start making amends and repairing this relationship. Um, so he convinces a woman from Tekoa to act like she's a seer, gives him a script, makes this whole play and this whole act play out where David is then interacting with this woman. And she paints this story about uh, division and wanting unity and 
Uh, David sees right through the act that it's really a ploy to get David to be aware of the fact that he himself is not is is driving d- division, not unity. That he's separating the kingdom, uh, and so David sees right through it, and he responds in in humility to bring Absalom back. But he says he sends a servant to bring Absalom back. Says, "Hey, tell Absalom he can return to his home, but he's not gonna he's not gonna see me. He's not gonna see my face. In other words, he's not getting any audience with me. He can come back to the city. I'm not gonna retaliate, but he's not gonna have an audience with me. Uh, which this only adds to the tension between them. Um, a, a kind of little side note that we see in chapter 14 here is that Absalom names a daughter of his Tamar." Uh, which is actually a really, really strategic way of honoring his sister um, because she was dishonored by the act of Amnon. Uh, we find that Absalom was back home for two years at this point uh, and had never seen the king. And he had requested Joab to help give him an audience and Joab wasn't willing. So Absalom, in his brilliance, uh, decides to send his servants to set Joab's field on fire. Joab's field gets set on fire. Joab is furious goes to Absalom and says, why did you do this? And Absalom says, because I tried to get an audience with you so you could give me an audience with the king and you didn't come. This was the only way to get you to come. And so he burns property of Joab. Joab shows up. Joab finally heeds what Absalom wants, convinces David to give an audience with with Absalom. Absalom gets his audience, shows up before the king, bows down and pays homage. And the damage that has occurred over the last five years is not repaired in this one meeting, but we have this moment where it seems to be potentially moving forward where David kisses Joab or Absalom, not Joab, kisses Absalom, and it seems that everything is kind of moving in the right direction. But the problem is, remember, five years of of tension, five years of no audience, of no relationship, no connection, it will pay its toll. We see in chapter 15, right after this instant, that then says Joab then gets a chariot and some men. Um, Absalom gets a chariot. Did I say Joab? Yeah. Dude, I'm getting these names all messed up. It's a hard Uh, one. But so Absalom gets a chariot. He's the, in essence, he's been, he seemingly is approved of his dad again to have an audience, which then gains him favor among the people because the king is, uh, has granted an audience to Absalom. It then reinforces to the people, okay, Absalom has been accepted again. Um, so he gets a chariot, he gets a bunch of men, and then he positions himself at a city gate and gains favor and acceptance through a little bit of manipulation where whenever he'd find that there's uh, something something of the people of Israel that needs some direction or advice or wisdom, uh, he says, man, the king doesn't have anybody to give you advice, but here's what I would say. Um, so then what ends up happening is through these conversations and through these pos- this position of Absalom sitting at a gate, he shows like he's a man of honor because of this chariot, because of the men that he has with him. Uh, he begins to get favor uh, among the Israelites. And when he gets favor, he becomes accepted. And then all of a sudden, David then gets told that uh, the that Absalom has now received favor from the people of Israel. So David now knows the kingship is not mine. I'm Absalom is seeking to overthrow me and take the throne. Um, so what David does is he gets up, grabs his, he's told to get up, grab his people and flee. All of those in his household follow him. He leaves 10 concubines back into the palace to take care of the palace. He marches out. Uh, it's high of Gath, who's a Philistine defector uh, who aligned with David. Now this is an interesting and, and, and kind of a, a 
a fun little like circle come back around with the Philistines because the Philistines were always uh, like a thorn in the flesh of David and the side of David. Uh, but this defector aligned with David probably when they were in battle, when they were battling Saul, uh, when the Philistines were fighting Saul and David was part of the Philistine army for a time, uh, they aligned with David and, and Atai makes this commitment and vow to David, wherever the king goes, we're going to go. So it shows, it shows allegiance to David. Uh, so David allows them to march and go with them. Um, as David is leaving the city, it's, it's uh, Abiathar and Zadok, I believe, are the priests that they bring out the Ark of the Covenant. They're offering sacrifices as David is leaving uh, the city. And as it's kind of a sign of God's presence uh, through the Ark of the Covenant, but also affirmation that David is the rightful king. Um, and then David directs the Ark of the Covenant to go back because it should stay in the city of Jerusalem. Um, he tells at this point uh, the priests to stay back um, and and to relay information that he'll set up a little bit later um, with, through a guy named Hushai. Hushai? Hushai? I don't know how to pronounce that one. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Anyways, then we're, we're shown this instance in chapter 15 where David is climbing the Mount of Olives grieving. His head is covered in his barefoot, which is a sign of like absolute devastation. Like he is distraught and devastated by the situation going on. It's interesting to note the Mount of Olives, that there's a garden that's at the at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And that garden is called the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is where Jesus had his most grief-stricken moment. Um, and so we see this illusion and the value and, the, and Mount, Mount of Olives is a significant place in Jerusalem. Um, and so you have these moments and these glimpses. I don't know if I've ever picked up on it until I was reading it this week. Um, but you see Mount of Olives is where David is ascending this hill, this little hill, barefoot and, and a, with his head covered, which is a sign of deep distraughtness, deep sorrow, deep grief. Um, the Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus is said to have sweat. His, his, he was so overwhelmed with sorrow and grief that he was sweating blood. Um, and so these are significant moments in the life of David, who we know that the Jesus comes from the line of David. So it's just kind of an interesting parallel as a sidebar uh, that I thought was really interesting and intriguing. Um, and so... And as he's climbing, he's told one of his trusted advisors, Ahithophel, is one of the conspirators. And so David cries out, this is, um, I don't remember if I put this in to read uh, about Ahithophel. I'm going to wait till I get there. Um, but David cries out that God would turn Ahithophel's advice, Ahithophel's advice into foolishness, which we'll see will come true. Yeah. Um, that ends chapter 15. David's grieving. He's then informed one of his trusted advisors as one of the conspirators that went with Absalom because um, Absalom is, was rallying guys to him. Uh, chapter 16, we're reintroduced to Ziba, uh, who then, uh, who was a servant, as you remember, a servant who was assigned to Mephibosheth, who was that son of Jonathan who was crippled. Um, and Ziba shows up with a pair of saddled donkeys. Uh, and comes out to meet David with supplies. And it says this in chapter 13, or this is David's interaction with Ziba. Um, Where is your master's grandson? The king asked. And I was referring to Mephibosheth. Why, why he's staying in Jerusalem, Ziba, Ziba replied to the king. For he said, today the house of Israel will restore my grandfather's kingdom to me. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. I bow before you, Ziba said. May I find favor with you, my lord, the king. It appears here that Ziba is the one acting honorably, not Mephibosheth. Well, and Ziba would never lie. Not no, at all. Yeah, he's, never. He's a trustworthy guy. He's an absolutely trusting guy. So David, in this moment, he's he's fleeing. He's running for his life because he he knows the throne is coming. Ziba shows up, who is supposed to be the servant of Mephibosheth, 
Mephibosheth, Ziba doesn't even say, I come on behalf of Mephibosheth. Ziba shows up with two donkeys, saddled donkeys, and, and supplies. And so it's to feed the king's army, it's to provide provisions because they're leaving and they, they kind of left in haste so they didn't put things together. Um, and, and it appears that Mephibosheth has, has been looking forward to this moment to where he can then, because as we've already said, he's the rightful heir to the kingdom. He's the rightful heir to the throne from the line of and the, Saul, the family of Saul. Then we interact with a guy named Shimei, who's another man from the house of Saul. Now he's not from the line of Saul, but he's from the house of Saul. So he could have been a servant. Um, he could have been uh, kind of a close relative or whatever that looks like, but he's from the house of Saul. It says that he comes out as they were passing through um, one of these Benjaminite cities, which we'll hear about in a minute, uh, cursing David and throwing stones at him. Uh, Abishai, Good your, job, your, your good guy, work, bro. Good work. Wants to wants to take this guy's head off. He says, "David, let me go take his head, remove his head from his shoulders, uh, remove his head from his body." Uh, but David comes to the point in the dialogue with Abishai and says, "You know what? It's not worth it." And and part of the illusion here is that I wonder if David is thinking, uh, and I'm I'm stealing this from the CSB, but I actually wondered the same thing. Um, if David is just enduring the persecution, so to speak, because he thinks if. God sees him endure this hardship that God might restore him quickly um, back to kingship. And so he takes the, the, the persecution, he takes the insults, the, the shame from Shammai uh, with patience. Um, and we get this interesting exchange between him and Abishai. I just thought it was funny. They want to take his head off. Let me remove his head from his body. It, it, it does bring you back to being in the camp with Saul and be like, hey, let me pin him to the ground. Yep. And, and David has always shown to act when it comes to things like this honorably towards the house of Saul, this is another moment because Shammai is still from the house of Saul. Uh, we shift back to Absalom. So while David was fleeing, while David had these interactions with Ziba and Shammai, uh, we see Absalom returns to Jerusalem with his men, including Ahithophel uh, and Hushai. Uh, Hushai was an attendant, a servant of David's. Um, and David directed, as I alluded to earlier, to stay and offer contrary advice to Ahithophel. Uh, and then he shows up Hushai to pay homage and allegiance to Absalom. Absalom questions it. Uh, Hushai says, I'm I'm here for the Lord. I'm going to serve whoever the Lord puts in, in leadership. Um, Absalom looks to Ithophel for advice and then compares to Hushai. So I'm going to read a couple of these passages. Um, it's a little larger chunk, but this is, this is the moment where Absalom is now looking, what should I now do? David is gone. What should I now do? So then verse 20 of chapter 16, then Absalom said to Ithophel, give me your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel replied to Absalom, sleep with your father's concubines, who he left to take care of the palace. When all of Israel hears that you have that you have become repulsive to your father, everyone with you will be encouraged, which is so crazy to me. But seems, seems legit. Thanks, yeah. Ahithophel. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the side of Israel. Now the advice, this is what I was referring to earlier about Ahithophel. Now the advice Ahithophel gave in those days was like someone asking about a word from God. Such was the regard that both David and Absalom had for Ahithophel's, Ahithophel's advice. Uh, Mephibosheth is nothing compared to Ahithophel as far as pronunciation, just so you know. That's fair. Um, so Ahithophel had high regard and honor as far as his advice was concerned. David understood this as one of one of his trusted people, but now he found out as he was ascending that hill that Ahithophel was a conspirator. So he was devastated and distraught. And then he remember, he prays, God, would you cause Ahithophel's advice to become foolishness? We see at the end of chapter 16, going into chapter 17, this continued dialogue. It says, when the kings had settled into the, his palace, 
after he'd slept with all the concubines and before all of Israel, uh, which was an act of shame. It was an act of, uh, of dominance. It was an act of saying, I'm now in charge. David's like, David is no longer uh, here. It says, Ahith- oh man, I can't even say Ahithophel. it now. Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will set out in pursuit of David tonight. I will attack him while he's weary and discouraged, throw him into a panic and all the people with him will scatter. I will strike down the only, only the king and bring all the people back to you. When everyone returns except the man you are looking for, all the people will be at peace. This proposal seemed right to Absalom and the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, summon Hushai, the archite, the archite also. Let's hear what he has to say as well. So Hushai came to Absalom and Absalom told him, Ahithophel offered this proposal. Should we carry out this proposal? If not, what do you say? And I'm not going to read all of the conversation here, but this is the one statement that I'll say that uh, was is really interesting to see play out between uh, and when Absalom comes back into the city of Jerusalem and looks for advice as far as what to do, it says this, verse 7, it says, Hushai, Hushai replied to Absalom, the advice Ahithophel has given this time is not good. So he then proceeds to tell uh, Absalom what he should do. He, he discourages an immediate attack. He rather suggests waiting, gathering all of the people of Israel for battle, and then go to attack David after he's been found. Um and so then what we see at this point is Absalom is then trying to figure out, well, what should I do? How should I listen? And then we see this in verse 17 or verse 14 of chapter 17. It says, since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice be undermined in order to bring about Absalom's ruin, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai, the archite, is better than Ahithophel's advice. Now, remember what, just said, what was just said, Ahithophel's uh, advice was often viewed and reviewed, rev, rev, revered, that's what I'm looking for, was well-respected among David and Absalom as if someone was speaking on behalf of God. So in this moment, based upon David's prayer to God about Hethophel's advice becoming foolish, and then Hushai, who was sent back by David to in essence spy out the plans and then report back to him, but also to give contrary advice, that's what Hushai did. And everyone trusted in him. So then Absalom follows suit. He takes the advice of Hushai. Uh, and we find that in this, Hushai is actually able to buy, uh, buy time. And the reality is, Hithophel's plan probably would have worked. Hithophel's plan probably would have worked. And David would have been defeated. He would have been killed. And then Absalom would have been established as king. But because they trusted Hushai, because God allowed Hushai's advice to seem more right, Hithophel's advice was ignored. So then Hushai sends back the message to David through Zadok and Abiathar, who then tell Jonathan and Ahimaaz, Ahimaaz? Uh, <laughs> I, got no, I got nothing there. So so two guys who were waiting, who part of the the, the conversation that, that David had as he was leaving was Hushai to stay, spy, tell Zadok and Abiathar, who again, they were the priests that were sacrificing as David and his army left. Um, and then they relayed the message through Jonathan and this other dude who I'm not even going to try and butcher his name. Um, and they kind of left and they tried to leave in secrets where they couldn't be seen entering a city. The city they were entering in was Behurim, uh, which is actually the village Shemai came from FYI. Uh, but the problem is Jonathan and this, this guy, they both were seen. And so Absalom was then informed. They head to Behurim. They show up to Behurim. And then it says that a man a, woman, a man and his wife protected. They had a well. Jonathan and his guy climbed down into the well. They hide in the well. The wife puts a, a cover back over it, throws some grain on it so it looks like it's not been touched, not been moved. Uh, and then 
Absalom and his men search for, come and say, hey, where did they go? The wife says, hey, they went by the water. Uh, and it's it's it kind of re- reflects a little bit of the spies who went into, into Jericho before they captured the city with uh, the two spies that were hidden by Rahab. Um, so Absalom's men look for him, can't find him. They go back to Jerusalem. At that point, Jonathan, this other guy, get up, cross the Jordan, go find David and tell him, you have to leave quickly. Um, and so we see in chapter uh, 17, verse 23, it says, when Ahithophel realized that his advice who had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He set his house in order and hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. And I read this because you have someone like Ahithophel who was well-respected, well-revered, offering advice, was thwarted by, by God. And then he realizes in this moment that David is most likely going to be returned to king, which is interesting because he was a conspirator and he was giving advice to Absalom, but it was thwarted. So all of a sudden he realizes, okay, there's now David's going to win. <laughs> and if David wins, I'm going to be viewed as a traitor uh, and I'm probably going to be killed. And so I'm going to get my house in order, So which, what he, which is what he did. And then he hanged himself and he ended up committing suicide because of that. And then he was buried in his father's tomb. So we have this instance and this whole interaction, and this says David and his men, and this is wrapping up chapter 17. It says, David and his men real are, are, came to the, the town of Menheim. Shobi, Rabbah, and Mekir all brought provisions for them, beds, foods, basins, pottery items. And so they're kind of at the point where they're finding a shelter. They're finding a city or a place in Menheim for refuge, for protection, for rest, to gather as a people. Um and this is where they kind of set themselves up. And they had a response of individuals of Shobi, Rabba, and Makir who brought them provision. And the reason they brought them provision, it's stated in chapter 17 there, is that they 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 thought the men must be exhausted from their journey, from the, the, the trip. And so they were just offering provision. They were being hospitable. Uh, and in the midst of this, at the end of 17, in the week's reading, we're going to jump into Psalm chapter 3, or Psalm, yeah, Psalm chapter 3, and then Psalm 63. Uh, and so I'm going to read Psalm 3 because I, I love that we see a couple of instances here. In this moment in David's life, we have two Psalms. One, why, that was written while he was fleeing Absalom. And two, was written while he was in the desert and the wilderness of Judah on this trek uh, on, in his fleeing from Absalom, trying to find refuge. Uh, and so Psalm 3 says this, it says, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts up my head. I cry out aloud, or I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of the thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord, save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people, Selah. And this is when he's fleeing Absalom. This is his response. We get a glimpse. And much like we had a glimpse in uh, in the previous section of reading in Psalm 51, his repentance. But you also see uh, kind of this like out of left field moment where you see him in the angst and the anxiety and the anxiousness that he feels. We also see in the midst of trial, in the midst of, of difficulty, in the midst of if not not facing death per se, because I think he, he understands I'm fleeing, I'm, I'm running for my life. But facing like removal from the throne, you see his response, his provision, his faithfulness is in God. He's, he, he looks to God in the midst of this. 
Psalm 63 uh, is written while he's in the wilderness. So at this point, I would I would say this probably fits right before he arrives at Menaheim, uh, where you see uh, even the first five verses. I won't read all of it, but this is the first five it says, "God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry and desolate and without water." Um, and so you see this. He he's navigating in the midst of a wilderness. It's hot. He's thirsty. Uh, and so when he comes to Manaheim, you see that the provisions given to him because the, the response of those guys like, man, they must be exhausted. Let's give them food to eat. Let's give them uh, beds to sleep on. Let's give them these things and provide for them in this way. But even in the midst of that wandering from uh, from the city of Jerusalem, his city, his palace to Manaheim, you see this this willingness to say, God, even though I thirst for you physically, or I, I, I thirst physically for water, I, I thirst even more for you. Um, and so he sees this correlation and connection where he just is desperate for God to show up and be faithful. I love Ch- Psalm 63, one of my favorite verses in there, uh, where it says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Um, but it's a really great Psalm, but it is in the context of his uh, running away from the, the, the city that it was his home for a long time. We'll shift back into 2 Samuel chapter 18 and most of chapter 19 as we wrap up this week's reading. Uh, chapter 18, we see David set up his army for battle uh, where he establishes leaders in a battle plan. Uh, he was going to go out to war with them, which is, again, interesting. I, I put in the, a kind of in a, a parenthesis, like, did he learn from the last time? <laughs> Uh, he's like, hey, I'm going to go to battle with you this time. Uh, but he's actually told to stay back and remain in the city by by Joab and his other his other army, his men, saying, no, no, you have to stay, stay in the shelter, stay in the city. Um, and and so he he relents. He tells the men, hey, I need you, I need you to do me this one favor: don't kill Absalom, bring him back safely. Um, which is which is an allusion to his his high concern at this point. Uh, and we'll see it play out in a little bit. And this is where Joab really kind of shows, I think, his mettle, his worth um, in his response to David's response to the battle. Uh, but he also shows sometimes his lack of consideration. I think he really does care about the kingdom. He cares about the king. He cares about the God's people. But um, so we have this moment where David, his last request to his men before they go to, to battle is to preserve Absalom's life. Uh, the battle takes place in a forest, a very thick forest. Um, and David's men, they win decidedly. Absalom and his army is defeated. Um, and if you remember, Hushai gave him advice, hey, why don't you rally everybody, then go fight? Because then we can come at him with the entire authority of of Israel. And if he shuts up in a city, then we can bring all of, we can bring the hammer down. It didn't work out. And Hushai didn't, I don't really think Hushai thought it would. He just was trying to thwart plans. Um, so they win decidedly, David's men do, Absalom, this is where it's, it's. if you've been in church or you've read the Bible before, you're probably familiar with this instance where Absalom's is that he's the guy hanging in a tree, his hair gets caught in a tree as his donkey walks underneath it, and these low branches are kind of entangled his hair, and he's just stuck there. He, the donkey keeps going, and he's just hanging by his hair. Awkward. Which, which is a little bit like comical in some respects. Um, so he's hanging there, the servants of Joab see him and don't do anything. And then they tell Joab, and Joab is almost like incredulous, like, wait, wait, you saw him and didn't kill him? What were you thinking? Uh, and the servant said, well, listen, King David said not to kill him. They said that to save him, to, to save his life. And Joab was, wasn't uh, willing to appear, adhere to that. <laughs> so he grabbed three, it says he didn't waste any time. He grabbed three spears and run them through the chest of Absalom. Um, and and if, as if that wasn't enough, apparently he wasn't dead yet. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Jeez. it says that there were 10 young men who were armor bearers of Joab. They surrounded Absalom and they killed him. Uh, and so then Absalom is dead. Um, it says that they took the body down from the tree and they threw him in a valley and covered him with a bunch of big rocks. And that was, and that was where Absalom laid dead. Um, Ahimaaz wants to, which is one of the men that was there, wants to go run and tell David the good news. Um, and Joab is like, no, you're not going to tell him because his son is dead. So you're not going to be the one to bring bad news to him. Uh, and so Joab sends a Cushite. So Ahimaaz Ahim is like Jones into go running. He says, okay, can I please go? Can I please go? Let me just run behind the Cushite. And Joab's like, why do you want to go so bad? And Ahimaaz is like, I just want to go running. It's like the Forrest Gump moment. I just want to run. <laughs> uh, but he's like, I just want to go running. I just want to run. And so Joab's like, fine, run. Like, go run. And it shows, and it details that Hayamaz is the one who outruns the Cushite. He runs across the plain, outruns the Cushite. It fast forwards to the city where David is, is staying. He's waiting at the gate. It says a watchman jumps up in the tower. He sees a man running. Typically, when one person is coming back, it reflects good news. And so David's anticipating good news. Uh, so he sees one. Uh, if they come in pairs or they come in a, a smaller group, it's not typically good news. So you see one guy running, and then the watchman says, hey, "Hey, there's the one, the first. There's another one running. The first one looks like it's the the, the run of a high mass. So apparently, he runs in a very distinctive way. Uh, and so the watchman's like, "The first one looks like it's a high mass." And so he shows up. He informs David of the victory, and David's response to the victory was, "What about Absalom? Tell me about my son Absalom." Ahimaaz doesn't respond. He says, I know that there was a disturbance, but I don't know what happened. And so then David tells Ahimaaz, okay, step aside. Let's wait for this next guy to show up. The Cushite shows up. Cushite tells him the same thing Ahimaaz says about victory. Uh, and then David again asks, what about my son's Absalom? And the Cushite tells him, your son Absalom is dead. And it's interesting to note that Ahimaaz would have known the truth. And when he was asking Joab to run ahead to tell David the good news, they're celebrating victory. In their perspective's eyes, in the army of David's eyes, this is great news that Absalom is dead, that the, the king David is, and his army is victorious, that he can then reassert, reassume the throne. But Joab knows differently. Joab knows the fact that Absalom is dead is going to be a, a major bummer. And David is not going to take lightly to the, the information. So when Ahimaaz shows up and David is asked, or David asks him about Absalom, Ahimaaz is kind of caught off guard because the response typically should be and would be from, a, from a, a man celebrating the victory of David's army would have been a resounding, joyful response. So when David shifts the conversation from the victory to Absalom, who Mind you, he's a conspirator against the throne. He's the one that caused their fleeing anyways. He's the one that was uh, shady, deceitful, conniving, shrewd, if you will, uh, and gaining favor among the Israelites to kind of, in essence, kick David and his household and all his those who are faithful to him out of the city of Jerusalem. Like, this is a bad dude. From an army man's perspective, that's a word we say, it, army man. Um, but from a man of, of army, of David's army, his perspective, to see that David is concerned about Absalom more than he's concerned about victory is telling. And so I actually think in this moment, Ahimaaz is kind of caught off guard by David's request about Absalom, and he wasn't sure how to respond because I think he was, like I said, caught off guard in that regard. The Cushite 
has no allegiance to David. The Cushite is a servant. The Cushite is someone who just does what he's told. Because if he doesn't do what he's told, then it's his life. So the Cushite shows up and then tells David. And in this moment, David is, he's distraught. It said, we see that chapter 18 ends with him wailing loudly about Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. If only I would have died instead of you. David's concern was not for his men as much as it was for his son. And that's a problem. Uh, and so we see in chapter 9, 19, not chapter 9, chapter 19, we see this instance and this tension um, that is, I think, probably one of the most profound moments for me as I was reading it in Joab and his response to David. Uh, it's it, We're told that the men arrive back in silence and in sorrow, which this would only happen is if they were defeated. Typically, when, a, when an army is victorious, it comes back to its city, it comes back to the town, and it's joyful, it's jovial, it's celebratory. But because they heard and, and, and were informed that David was weeping and grieving the loss of Absalom, it, in essence, robbed them of the joy of victory. It robbed them of, of the, uh, the, the, the spoils of, of battle, so to speak. Um, and so there's this moment, I want to read the first few verses of chapter 8. Uh, because it's very important and very intentional to see how Joab responded. It says this in chapter 1, verse 19. It says, It was reported to Joab, the king is weeping. He's mourning over Absalom. That day's victories was turned into mourning for all the troops, because on that day the troops heard the king is grieving over his son. So they returned to the city quietly that day like troops coming in when they were humiliated after fleeing in battle, which is significant because they didn't flee. They conquered. They defeated uh, all of Israel. It says, so, but the king covered his face and cried loudly, my son, Absalom, my Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went to the house of the king and said, today you have shamed all your soldiers, those who saved your life, as well as your sons, your wives, and your concubines by loving your enemies and hating those who love you. Today, you have made it clear that the commanders and soldiers mean nothing to you. In fact, today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, it would be fine with you. Now get up. Go out and encourage your shoulder, soldiers, for I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will remain with you tonight. This will be worse for you than all the trouble that has come up to you from your youth until now. So what did David do? He got up, sat at the city gate, and all the people were told, look, the king is sitting in the city gate. They all came into the king's presence. Meanwhile, each Israelite had fled to his tent. So there's a couple things going on here. Typically, when the men would return from war, the king would be at the city gate welcoming, celebrating, rejoicing in the, in the efforts and, the, and the, the heroics of his army. That didn't happen. And so the city gate is where, and I, we talked about this a few, a few episodes back about the, the significance of a city gate in a, in a town, in a city. And, uh, and so the city gate is like a prominent place of, of socio, of economic, of political po power where you have conversations and dialogue. And so it was a very significant place of, of people to arrive and to be together uh, for common purposes. And rejoicing in battle would have been one of them. Yeah. If you remember back to the book of Ruth, that's where Boaz meets with uh, the, the relative to decide who's going <laughs> who's gonna to be able to... Uh, uh, redeem, redeem Ruth and own the land that's yeah. associated with that. Yeah. So that's, so that's the significance of the fact that, so the, get the picture for a second. David is at the city gate when he finds out there's people returning, when he finds out the individuals returning, the Cushai and, and Haimaz. David's at the city gate. As soon as he finds out, he leaves. He's weeping and wailing. Uh, and so the city gate is significant. So the army comes back. David's not there to welcome them. And Joab is absolutely 100% correct. 
you, Absalom is more important to you than us. If we like, that's a strong statement for the commander of, uh, of David's army to say, if we would have all been dead and Absalom alive, it would have been fine with you. Like this is a strong in, a rebuke that Joab gives David, and Joab is is right. He's right in this moment, and so David responds as he should have. He responds in humility. He responds in recognition of you're right. What I how I have responded has been poor. Um, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, Joab probably saved David's kingship at this point. Yep. He maintained, he allowed David to maintain favor and integrity. And it's a bummer <laughs> because the way he had to do it, Joab's desire to kill Absalom was not to thwart David's advice, was but was to protect David's kingship. It was to protect the rightful heir of the king. Um, and so we see at the end of chapter 19 in the uh, verse eight there, it says each Israelite had fled to his tent. Israel realizes they're defeated and they run back to their tents. I almost picture like a, t- a, like a dog with a tail between its legs. They realize, oh man, we messed up. So Israel hid after the defeat of Absalom. Uh, David sends messengers out to Zadok and Abiathar, uh, Abiathar uh, about being restored as king. Um, and they do, they call and rally the people uh, David then takes Amasa, who's a relative of his, and places him as commander of his army and replaces Joab with Amasa. And the reason for this, and, and there's, it's twofold. One, there's a really good, it's a pretty clear sign that David knew Joab is the one who killed Absalom. So there's a removal of authority and position because of it. Well, if there's a doubt about that, that gets assuaged next week. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Find out David knows. So, so he knows about it, replaces Joab as the commander of his army. Amasa is now placed in charge, and that's who Absalom put in charge of the army when Absalom was was trying to take over. Uh, and so, what what David does here is he actually buys favor with the with with all of Judah, with all of Israel, by doing so because it's almost like, hey, I recognize the value. I rec- we're going to work together. It's it's a sign of unity. Um, but David also realized it was it was not why it would be unwise to kill a man who killed the one who conspired for the throne. <laughs> right. Uh, and so Joab may have been removed, but he wasn't treated harshly because of his his uh, decision to kill Absalom, uh, which is good because there's David would be within his rights because it's his son, but he knew it would be unwise because it would actually create more division and, and, and friction in, in the kingdom itself. Well, and there's a reality too that Absalom, um, even if he was not going to be killed, he needed to be exiled. He needed to be yep. removed from Israel completely. And I don't think David would have done that. Well, and, and, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to so, so Joab really is... It's it's hard to balance because he's disobeying the king, which is not right. Um, and so he sh- he should have let Absalom live and take him to the king. Um, however, like that Absalom would have tried this again. Absolutely, I, I, I'm <laughs> I, I feel very confident in saying that if 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 Absalom had lived and jo- Joab had not killed Absalom, we would have we would have gotten some sort of a rehash of this story in the next five years yep. or. Eventually, when we get to the end, we'll see that there is some uh, there is some some palace intrigue over which son of David is going to be the one to become king. Absalom, I guarantee you, is a part of that, oh, and yeah. probably wins out the hearts of the people mm-hmm. in that as well. So Joab is, like you said, Joab by making David go out is saving his reign. Joab also by killing Absalom is probably helping to save David's reign as well. Yeah, and his line, it, more specifically, the right people in line. So I agree, it's so true. Um, and it's funny because if you think about it, the reason why why Absalom and David were reunited, so to speak, was because of Joab. 
And now because True. Joab is also the one that creates the final separation. Um, and, and again, for me, it goes back to understanding like Joab's commitment and loyalty to the kingdom and to the people of God. Um, did he operate hundred percent with perfect integrity? No, not at all. But I do think it's interesting to see some of these things play out because David, since Bathsheba, you, I mean, you see a very stark difference in, in the, in King David since that moment, it's, it's all been downhill and it will continue to be downhill from here. So there's, a, there's a couple redeeming moments, I think, but there's not a lot to it. Yeah, early David is for sure. The, he's early David is probably the best king Absolutely. in the history of Israel, um, and then you get towards the end, and he's still like. I mean, we'll save this for when David dies, but we're going to rank him. Wait, very, he dies? Yeah, just kidding. We're going to rank him very high on yeah. our king tier list. But like you said, it is a bummer to see he becomes he becomes very weak, and then. By the time we get to his death, we'll see that he becomes he becomes very similar to the yeah. king that he swore that he would not be. But we'll save that for mm. next week. Well, it it does make me. I mean, I, I think it makes your point even more strong that you made earlier, just about the toils and the the wear and tear of war. All David has done since he was anointed king was fight, right? And well, maybe not all. Like he. But he was engrossed in the politics. He was engrossed in the battle. He was engrossed in fleeing for his life. He 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 killed Goliath before he was fleeing. Like the, all he has known as king is is war, and whether it was internal civil war, whether it was uh, external war, like he. So so it makes me wonder. And I don't know if I've ever thought about it until you mentioned it today. It was just the idea of like it does make me wonder at what point has war taken its toll. And, and you see, like David's final, like moral failure, his biggest moral failure. It it it's almost like the 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 wind has been taken out of his sails, is what it feels like, and it's like this slow downward spiral where he watches his house fall apart, his sons fall apart. Right. Anyways, so we see these moments. Um, so David replaces Joab with a mass up, um, and then we see Sh- Shimei and Ziba. Uh, we. As they're coming back into town, as David and his armies, obviously word has spread. Uh, Judah and Israel are bringing David back, re, like encourage, say, come back and be our king. We want you to take the rightful place in the palace. Uh, and they both show up to pay respect. Um, Shimei, I don't even know, Shimei, however you say, Shimei, he, he's the one, if you remember, he was cursing David and he was throwing stones and he was rebuking David and David endured patiently. Uh, and he comes back, it shows that he lays himself down and and prost- like he lays himself face down, repents and says, I, I, I've wronged, please forget what your servant did. Forgive me for how I treated you. Uh, and David pardons him. David tells him he's not going to lose his life and he swears by oath that he, he won't be killed. Um, and it's this pardon moment where David's grace and he's like, Will, will let bygones be bygones. And there's no loopholes in that. No, there's, yeah, there's no technicalities. There's no like, oh, I was crossing my fingers, you're dead anyways. No. I was going to say, because it uh, this definitely won't come up later. Not at <laughs> but, all. You know, well, just let me next week. We'll talk about it. We'll see. Oh, dude, I totally forgot. That's yeah. awesome. It's been a while since I've read. Anyways, all I have to say, there's this moment of pardon that David gives. David gives from I as he's responsive in humility um, in that moment. He, in essence, he he's the biggest tail between his legs is what it is. Uh, he's like, well, that didn't work. The things that he even prophetically was like prophesying, so to speak, I was like, oh, nope, those are all wrong. Not true at all. So he responds in repentance. And then it says Ziba shows up next um, and with Mephibosheth. 
Uh, and David confronts Mephibosheth. And this is what I want to read for in chapter 19 here as we wrap up this week. This is where we end the week's reading. Uh, and this is the interaction. If you remember, Ziba showed up with two saddled donkeys full of provisions for David and his army as they were fleeing and run and leaving the city. And David inquired, well, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said, oh, he, he stayed home. He said, man, this could be the time where I get my, my king, my throne back. Uh, and, and so then Mephibosheth so, shows up as David's coming back into the city. And it says this in verse 24 of chapter 19. It says, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet, trimmed his mustache, or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. That, that's a sign of honor. That's a sign of griefing. That's a sign of sorrow. That's a sign of my king has left me, has left the city. It's not a sign of a conspirator. It's not a sign of allegiance to Absalom. It's a sign of allegiance to David, where his feet have not been cared for, meaning they've not been washed. They've not been tended. They stink. They smell. Um, their toenails are grown out, whatever that looks like. Their feet were, were a, very significant, a very significant thing uh, in, in ancient times. And it says he didn't trim his mustache. So he just looks unkept. He looks uh, homely, if you will. Didn't wash his clothes from the day. And so it's a sign of grief and sorrow uh, that David had left. And when he came to Jerusalem, verse 25 says, when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me? My lord, the king, he replied, my servant Ziba betrayed me. Actually, your servant said, I'll saddle the donkey for myself so that I may ride it and go with the king for your servant is lame. Remember, Ziba showed up with two saddled donkeys. These are not donkeys that are carrying provisions. These are donkeys that people are supposed to be riding. So Ziba shows up riding one of them, but also having one. So there was no way Mephibosheth would have been able to ride, even if he, even if he was able, even if Ziba left one, he or no, even if he would have wanted to go, his donkey was taken with him because Ziba, this is my speculation, Ziba took both donkeys to leave Mephibosheth behind so he could take advantage of an opportunity. So verse 27, Mephibosheth is continuing to speak. He says, Ziba slandered your servant to the Lord, my king, but my Lord, the king is like an angel of God. So do whatever you think best. For my grandfather's entire family deserves death from my Lord, the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. As a quick side note, when you sit at the king's table, you're supposed to be well-groomed. <laughs> it's, it's a sign of honor, but it's also a place of honor. And it's also a place where the king is not to be presented with homely looking individuals. So the fact that, that Mephibosheth shows up to David, David sees him and he's not well-kept. It's, it's another indication of, uh, of sorrow and grief that, that Mephibosheth is walking. Uh, so Mephibosheth says, you let me eat among, your t- among those who eat at your table. So what further right do I have to keep on making appeals to the king? Then the king said, why keep on speaking about these matters of yours? I hereby declare you and Ziba are to divide the land. So he doesn't get what's returned to him because at this point, David had already given the land to Ziba. All that belonged to Mephibosheth was to be Ziba's. And Ziba's like, hey, may I find favor? That's awesome. I'll take it. Uh, and I think what Mephibosheth says here is actually pretty significant. And this is where it ends. This is where the chapter ends. So we're kind of left with a little bit of, of closure, but not entire closure. Uh, because we don't know what happened afterwards. And we're not going to know necessarily. Um, but Mephibosheth said to the king, instead, since my lord, the king has come to his palace safely, let Ziba take it all. In other words, Mephibosheth says, you are enough for me. I'm content staying with you. I don't need all that other stuff. Let Ziba keep it. Um, because remember, Mephibosheth, even though he had all the rights to the to the land of Saul, he stayed in the palace because he was eating at the king's table. So he didn't go to the land. 
Ziba tended the land. Ziba did all the work for the land. He oversaw it all. So he said, I don't need it. I'm going to be here present with the king. That's all that matters to me. And so that's where at the end of the week, so it's actually pretty a pretty redemptive, incredible moment where you find Mephibosheth in his honor and his understanding, Ziba's the one who was a little bit deceitful and manipulative and cunning and took advantage of a situation. He still reaps the benefits of it. Uh, Ziba's not called out or killed yet. You know, there's nothing that we see that is happening at this point in the reading. Uh, but we see Mephibosheth is content and happy with the fact that David is back and returns. Uh, and so that's where the reading ends this week. There is a ton here, as I said earlier at the very beginning of the podcast, um, and I barely can scratch the surface with the time we have, and I know uh, that there's so much more to it. So I hope that you enjoy as you read this week, especially these portions of, of the text, because there's so much happening and so many different back and forth moments. So it's pretty significant, but I love the way our week's reading this week and specifically. Yeah, this was a long episode with a bunch of stuff happening. Uh, so we're going to have two quick segments, and they will, they will be quick, listeners. Don't worry. Uh, to finish it out, first off, talking about what we learned today. Okay, so for me, very simple. Um, it's going back to David after he's been confronted with his shin, his sin, his, shin, his sin. With his shins Bathsheba. are pretty big deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does he do? His instinct is to immediately repent and run to God and bring his sin before the Lord. Um, and I think as Christians, right, this is something that we struggle with when we when we fall short, when we sin, and when we know we have. Oftentimes, what's our instinct? Our instinct is to run away. Our instinct is to try and hide it and cover it up, which is also really silly when we think to ourselves of like, yeah, God's not going to find out about this or whatever. Um, but it is it is an incredibly healthy thing to go and bring our failures before the Lord and be able to feel the forgiveness of God in those moments. So uh, for me, I think David, he does that beautifully in this story. And I think it's something for all of us to remember as we go about our daily lives. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so total disclosure, it's be real time. If oh you follow the gosh. app, it's be real. So I was taking a be real. So I was like a half a second late, darn it. Uh, but yeah, my application I think is really um, just important. I think the, the thing that I think stood out to me the most was the, uh, just the D- David's trust and confidence in the of persecution and provision. I think that Psalms 3 and 63 are really poignant in the midst of what we were reading. Um, and even as I was talking, like, I just think even David's, uh, even Mephibosheth's response to David was really, really interesting to me, um, where he had contentment in, in King David returning. Uh, and maybe if I can be a little bit like overly practical and spiritual here, like I think there's things in our lives where we look to the provision of the the, the land or the property, the things that we have, but Mephibosheth's desire and willingness to be content with the king's return is a big deal. Not to be like Lord of the Rings spoof, um, but I think it's significant and pretty interesting too to think about his contentment with David's return. Um, but I also was very challenged and encouraged by David's um, his trust and confidence in God's provision in the midst of wandering in the desert to find refuge from his son Absalom. So uh, those are pretty significant. I think it just reinforces for us the value of trusting in that God is faithful, that God is the provider. All right. And last thing for today, we have a question that came in. So it says, hi, let's read the Bible host extraordinaire. One question and one comment. So there's a little... Well, who's the extraordinaire? We're hosts. We're both hosts extraordinaire. It's a plural. 
Oh, I didn't see. I heard host. Oh, gotcha. I was like, wait a second. You just gotta read. You just gotta read along. Uh, okay. Question: Did Samson make the Nazarite vow, or was it made for him? In the podcast this week, you you comment on how many times he broke the vow, but would he have taken it more seriously if he had made it himself rather than being told that it was his destiny? Uh, and then comment: The name of the song is not "Hey There, Delilah." It's "My My My <laughs> Delilah" by Tom Jones. So. Uh, I have no idea what song that is. Just so, saying, I'm, go. I'll go listen to it. After Apparently, us, we were just fools. I still think of the song every time. When I literally, in, in reviewing the question, first song, Hey there, Delilah, what's <laughs> it like? Anyways. Um, okay, so this is a really interesting question. Uh, I, I, we're not, we're not, so th- there's no clear answer to this, right? Um, yes, there is. So first off, well, just, I think. I'm just kidding. I'm yeah. Right. So I think with Samson's parents, what we see is that they make, they, they commit him to the life of a Nazarite. Now, this one's a little bit special because God specifically commands this. So this isn't yeah. like, like in, in the case of Samuel, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe God commands Samuel to be a Nazarite. I believe his mother promises to make him a Nazarite um, if that is fulfilled. So, and I, I don't think it's said, said, set up like that beforehand. But in both cases, it's, I don't know. it's parents, in both of those cases with Samson and Samuel, it's parents committing their children to be Nazarites. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a thing that very much can happen. So we see, I, I believe even with John the Baptist, it's before, basically it's told before he's born, like this is going to be the life that he leaves. So the three major Nazarites that we see in the Bible are all Nazarites from birth. And it se- and seemingly their parents are the ones who kind of make this vow for them. Yeah. And so to, to put it into perspective, no, Samson is not the one who originated the vow, um, but he is responsible to hold on to the vow, particularly in Samson's case, because this is a command from the Lord. Yeah. So it's not even like, I didn't want to be a Nazarite. It was like, hey, buddy, too bad, because like, <laughs> God right. straight up said, you need to be a Nazarite. Yeah. Um, as for the second part of your question, would he have taken it more seriously if he had made the vow himself rather than being told it was his destiny? I think so. You don't think so? No. Aaron's shaking his head no. no. I mean, Samson's a knucklehead, to be sure. Yeah. Um, and so I guess this is where I think we, we have to imagine you know, listeners, uh, close your eyes with me, unless you're driving, don't close your eyes then. But uh, <laughs> Please leave um, them open. <laughs> imagine, imagine a world where Samson himself arrives at the conclusion that he needs to take a Nazarite vow. That is clearly not the world that we live in because Samson is just kind of, he just yeah. does his own thing. In a world where Samson actually took the Nazarite vow himself, I think he does take it more seriously. But like you said, there's nothing in the character of Samson that shows that he's, uh, he's all about keeping the vow, that's for sure. Yeah, but I, so I, man, here's the deal. I think... I think he willingly d- didn't uphold the vow. Um, you, and you got to remember context. I, f- I feel bad. Like, I, I feel like I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like a broken record in some respects. But in, in ancient Middle Eastern culture, in ancient times, parents were the ones that provided direction, provided um, uh, authoritarian direction for their children. Um, they didn't, if, 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 you're, if you're a carpenter and your son becomes a carpenter, that's how it works. You follow their profession. You do what they say. There's just the way it plays out that way. Samson, Nazarite vows were not uncommon and unknown in Samson's time. He would know at a young age what it meant to be a Nazarite, to, with, to maintain the vow. Where the problem is, is he made conscious decisions not to uphold the vow. Right. And so I don't think... I mean, we can speculate and say if he came to the point where he had to make the uh, Nazarite vow, he would make the decision. No, I, I yeah, I mean, and, and you could say that, but I think because he he would have had to come across that point anyways as a as a young man, 
He would have had to come to a point where it's like, am I going to uphold this vow or am I going to disregard the vow? Um, and and also, biblically speaking, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, Evan, but I'm, I'm pretty sure Nazarite vows also were limited. In, like they weren't like a, most of them were not lifelong vows. When we hear and when we read about a Nazarite vow, I, I wish I would know, remember off the top of my head, but the, there's a passage that d- d- uh, uh, describes what a Nazarite vow is. I don't believe it was always a lifetime commitment. Um, yeah, I don't remember off the top of my and head. So I, but, and maybe I'm wrong and I totally, so take this with a grain of salt and hold light loosely to it. And in our beloved listener who asks this question, I know you'll probably do some digging for me as well. Um, so catch me on a Sunday and, and give me your thoughts. But I think it, was, it doesn't always have to be intended to be a lifetime vow. Um, it's a duration, I believe. Um, so, but the, so there's layers to this conversation. And so I think at the end of the day, Samson decided, showed that he didn't care about the vow, didn't want to uphold the vow, um, and that was on him. And so I'm, I'm not convinced that if he came to a point himself, he would have, because he had a woman issue. He had he had a love for women. So, uh, sorry, a person... Evan's looking it up, so... Yeah, I, just, I was looking for it. Uh, yeah, there is an option to be... You can, you can declare yourself a Nazarite for a specific amount of time, uh, and usually 30 days is what that would kind of be. And then I'm a Nazarite forever is a different vow that you would take. And then that's a permanent Nazarite and the laws are slightly different there. Yeah. So, and so it, it, it would, I would have, I'd be curious to know or to think through the lens. And I don't know if I'll do the research now, but at, at some point, what was John the Baptist vow? What was Samuel's vow? Like what was, well, what that's was I was, Samuel, I think is clearly, I think the people who are Nazarites from birth are clearly lifelong Nazarites because it doesn't make any sense to have your child be a Nazarite for the first 30 days of their life, you know, well, but I, mean? I don't, and yeah, so I guess it, so it, it just begs a question. Like I'm not, uh, yeah. At the, at the end of the day, the simple answer, the simple, my response is the question is simply this. There was a point where you, he would have had to make a decision about it. And, and it, it's not just, Hey, this is what my parents say. So I have to do it. Yes. That's part of it. But you still come to a point of age, just like in today's society, where there's what I would refer to as this, this, this picture of an age of innocence, so to speak, where you have to make your own decision. Um, and, and you have to determine, am I going to trust and obey what, uh, what I've been told or what I've been handed out? I have to work that out. And am I going to uphold it? Um, and so Samson would have had that moment too. And he, he, obviously we can see in his life, he didn't care enough about the vow to uphold it and maintain it. Uh, and so I'm not convinced he would have because he had that chance and didn't. So, but that's me being super critical and, and mean about Samson. So. There you go. It's a good question, though. Yeah, no, it's it's always fun to look. I would have never. These are fun just to talk through. Yeah, I would have never looked into because I'm I'm reading the passage in Numbers as well. That's so what, it was. what I just read was basically rabbinic tradition of like about thirty days is when you'd be Nazarite. So in the actual passage, it just says, um, "Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, when." Either a man or a woman shall clearly utter a vow, the vow of Nazarite, to concentrate himself unto the Lord. He shall drink and abstain from wine and strong drink. So it goes through all of the rules and it says, all the days of his Nazarite ship is when these shall be done. So there is there, yeah, the implication there is that it's not always a lifelong, yeah, it's not always a lifelong. So it might even call into question some of the comments I made then talking about Samson, because when he took honey from the lion carcass, it would have broken a Nazarite vow. But there's potential where the Nazarite vow would not have been in effect at that point. No, either. I think I think Sam, like I said, I think Samson is a for sure. Samson is a Nazarite for life because I th- that's what the the angel of the Lord I believe says all the days of his life. Um, and I would like I, I would still hold that anyone who is a Nazarite from birth, the implication there is that they're a lifelong Nazarite, not that like before they can even function really. That yeah. they're that they're uh, 
um, taking yeah, the so it, for me, it just reinforces the fact that I think if Samson had the option, he would have had the option. He would have had the point where he had to make a decision and say yes to this or no to this. Right. Um, and so that's why I would say I don't think he would have made the decision if he came to the conclusion himself. Because I think he would have had that. And he would have had that. Maybe. Option. So anyways. Well, listeners. That good was question. Little, that, yeah. Good question. A little bit longer to answer than we thought it was going to be. Than but you thought. Yeah, that's true. But it does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can do that on our website as well. There's a give button in the upper right hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.